I think being an athlete doesn't really teach you how to play. Like you're, it's a serious business, you know? And so, uh, and like you said, like the intangibles, uh, things that we can't really put in a box, you know, we can't really measure. Those are the things that really end up being most important as you get older. And you really always are putting that on the back burner. I find when you're busy, 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 rushing, rushing, rushing. But when you look at it, when you really just, you know, kind of get down to it, those are the things that matter most. And if you, you know, you talk to someone who's dying, they're going to say that the relationships, love, you know, did I have fun in my life? Yeah, did exactly. I find joy in my life? That, those are the things that matter most. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today's guest is Alison Pillow. Alison helps women become their most vibrant self to feel strong, capable, and confident, and to create the body they love by teaching them how to build a foundational nutrition and movement practice that's just right for them and based on their body's unique physiology. She's also the host of the Integrate Yourself podcast. Well, welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. I've got a great, exciting, interesting, and deep woman to discuss the dualities of womanhood today with. Welcome, Allison P. Lowe. Thank you, Paul. I'm so happy to be here. I'm honored. Thanks so much. It's my pleasure. We uh, met, it was a long time ago, and you reminded me in a previous chat that uh, it was at a conference where I was lecturing at in Georgia uh, quite some time ago. How many years ago was that? Oh, my God. I think it was, I want to say 2005. So it was a while back. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I I remembered meeting you um, once you told me about it. I had a very specific memory. For some reason, I felt like I was sitting at a table or something and you came up to me. It was just (laughs) a vision that I had. And uh, at that time, you described how you were lost in your life and and just uh, needed some kind of support or reinforcement. And I, I did what I normally do, which is read your energy field and check in with your soul and told you that you're going to be successful in your life. And you had a positive emotional response to that, which was lovely. And since then, you've gone through HLC1, HLC2, HLC3, and you and I have shared a client and had discussions about related things over the years. And um, we're going to talk about your journey from being a gymnast to a mother with struggling with the challenges of womanhood that ultimately led you to being a highly skilled, empathic, and compassionate therapist that really understands people, women, and the challenges of life. So I'm excited to share this journey and the wisdom that you carry within you today. So to start with, you really had quite a potent and turbulent journey. And as I've shared in the introduction, we met early in your life when you were lost and you've come a long way since that day. To set the stage for our discussion on the dualities of womanhood, can you give us an overview of your life and the challenges and successes that you've experienced? Absolutely. I I think, and remembering that day, Paul, uh, I was so... I, I was so lost. Like I did not have any idea who I was. I was really, I was a stay at home mom at that time. I had, I wasn't working. So 
I loved I loved being a mom actually, and that was a huge desire for me. I really wanted to be a mom, and it, it caused me to slow down, which is the first thing that I the first time I'd ever done that before in my life. So, with that, you know, there was a joy in it, but there was also an anxiety around it, like because I lost I when there was nothing that I was doing externally so much uh, to define who I was like gymnastics for so long or being a student or having a job, uh, I, I had a, um, a challenge there. I had a, a loss of identity, you know? And so I was just a mom. I was, you know, not that being a mom is, is not important. And of course I feel like it was one of the most important or is most of the, one of the most important jobs I've ever had to do and wanted to do, but I also didn't know who I was. I, I completely, completely lost it. And so when I saw you that day and you put your hands, hand on my hand, you put your hand over one hand, you shook my hand, and then you put the other hand over the hand, my other hand. And I was, it was like a shock to my system. <laughs> I was like, I just got this jolt. Like it was like a, like lightning or something that just shot through me and just made me feel for the first time in a very long time. Um, and I think it was just that those emotions were really deep, deep down. And then hearing you say that I'm going to be successful, such loving words from a person I didn't even know, it just made, it just brought me to tears. And so um, that was a very pivotal, pivotal point in my life because um, it really woke me up from a deep sleep in a way. So at that point I was like, oh my God, like they're, I want to learn more about this. I want to, you know, learn more about how to manage myself, how to develop these life skills uh, to where I don't feel totally um, helpless. You know, I can, I'm not a victim. I can, I can kind of uh, create responsibility around my life and move forward that way. So, and also just, I felt like there was a passion that had been ignited within me that just was like, you know, oh, okay, I can do something for myself. I don't have to be doing things for everybody else all the time. I don't have to, um, that doesn't define who I am. Right. So, um, so that was that, that was a big day for me. And, um, and it did change a lot of things. It changed a lot of things with my relationship. Um, when I got your book, How to Move, Eat and Be Healthy. Uh, it was life change, literally life changing too. I just totally, and that was before I met you and, um, it, you know, it just changed my whole perspective on what healthy is. I before had learned about eating through gymnastics and as an athlete, which isn't really healthy, it's just for keeping your weight down. Um, and then you do eat junk food still. So, you know, it's, it's not really to me, it was, you know, I was eating like Splenda and all these low sugar, like crappy artificial sweeteners and thinking that was healthy. And then I read your book and I was like, oh, wow, that's, I had no idea that there was anything like that, you know, food was different. There was organic food and there was conventional food. So that was mind blowing at the time. Of course, now we know so much more about it. But, um, but before that, like it, that information was not out there. No, and it wasn't. Yeah. So, um, so that was really incredible. And then um, I realized that I really wanted to start teaching people that. But before we go down that road, um, some challenges, I think, in my life, and really one of the biggest challenge was when I was 
that I can th- that comes to mind that relates to what we're talking about today, which is womanhood, is you know when I was fifteen, around the time where I was starting my menstrual cycle, uh, and which is a rite of passion, pas- uh, excuse me, which is a rite of passage for women for sure. I think it's one of the first rites of passage because uh, you're turning, you're you're transitioning from a girl to a woman, literally, physically. But, um, and so from that point on, everything in your life changes and there is, there is a need to prepare for that, but we don't really teach women that in our society. So, um, I was just given information about, you know, how to handle my period. And, uh, that was, it was very minimal information and just, you know, keep going. Like basically let's figure out how to do this so you can wear a leotard and keep doing gymnastics and not you know, not let anything show, you know, um, and nothing, nothing else was really (laughs) talked about. Now, you know, I don't want to blame my mom because she did the best she could. I love her so much. She had her own struggles. And so, um, you know, I've worked through a lot of that kind of thing. Uh, but, uh, I just, I just felt lost. I was like, I don't know what's happening to me. I, I, this is, I don't feel like myself anymore. And then at, Shortly after that, my parents got a divorce, and then I literally felt like the floor was coming out from under me. I felt like my whole foundation was gone, and I didn't know what to do. So, um, you know, that was a that was a I felt like a shit show at the time. It was just well, yeah. It's <laughs> you know the sad part of it is is how common both of the things you've just mentioned. You know, the lack of education for young women about what's happening to them, what it means to be a woman and, you know, how to manage that and how to prepare for the rest of your life. And, you know, then there's the other issues of the toxicity of tampons and all the stuff that's caused tremendous problems for females that still really rarely ever makes it into the mainstream media. Right. And and the, you know, the average marriage today only lasts two and a half years and so that's, you know, quite a debacle because the number of people that get divorces when they have young kids is, is really, really high. And, it, uh, you know, my mother uh, left my father when I was very young, uh, probably three, I think. But I still got to see him intermittently enough that I didn't have that kind of sense of that he was totally gone and I was too young to really know what was happening. But when my father started, I mean, when my mother started uh, being intimate with another man, me and my brother and my sister went through quite a painful, scary experience because, you know, we all thought, why is this man touching my mother? And there was no explanation. And, and, you know, then next thing you know, he's, telling us what to do. Then we're being physically abused by him. And our, our little hearts were like, where's our daddy? Where's our daddy? Where, why isn't he protecting us? And what's happening? And we couldn't get any clear answers or explanations out of my mother. And, you know, so it, it, it's, it's a very painful, painful experience that, as you very well know, can leave a very deep scar in a person that can affect every part of their life for the rest of their life. And 
So, you know, we'll get into some of these things as we go, but, uh, you know, I, I'm totally intimate with everything you're talking about and countless is the number of my patients and clients that I've uh, found these types of issues to be at the very core of very serious health challenges in their life and relationship challenges at every age. I, I don't doubt that at all. I, I mean, I, and I think when I look back on my life, I, I see how, and I know I'm not the only one, I see how the suppression of the the feminine is is really detrimental to health and, and women especially because, you know, I, I don't know. I know you know, I look back, I don't blame anybody, but I just think it's our society that we try to suppress uh, anything that is going to inconvenience us, you know, like having a period or, uh, you know, you know, if you start having sex, we need to put you on birth control. You know, and that's what happened to me. So it's not like it's not celebrated when you're a woman and you have sex for the first time. Your dad isn't really happy about that, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> so <laughs> I have two boys now, so I'll never really know, you know, as a mom what that feels like. But I, it's just, it's different with boys, you know? Uh, it's very different when my son had sex for the first time. It was a very different experience than, you know, how we responded to him that that I got responded to in my house. And I was in trouble, you know? And so um, it's it's just, we have to start realizing how how we are doing this here. This is this is creating a lot of havoc in people's health. The way we're we're not honoring these rites of passage for us uh, turning you know from the turning from the girl to the woman, and then really helping gr- young girls understand the power that they have once that happens. I mean, you are going to be looked at by men differently, you know, and you got to understand a little bit about how that all works and how you want to harness that energy, you know? And so those are the things that I'm just now learning a lot about now at the age of 46, you know? So, um, but if I had been able to learn it then, if there was somebody who could have taught me that, that would have been incredible. And I think now we are coming to that point where these things are more out there. There's more information about how to help young women, but you know, as we'll probably get into today, there's also a, a, a little bit of a, a dichotomy of like now women also are trying to be like men. So, um, you know, there's we we kind of get to play all roles now in some ways, and it's it's really fast. It's really incredible, but at the same time, I think we still need to know how the feminine and masculine work and how we can balance those energies out. And but we first need to know, you know from teachers who can teach us more about the feminine energy, how that works and how we can keep that part healthy. Yeah, it's very important. I mean, just listening to you talk and everything we've shared so far, uh, you know, when my mother had three kids by the time she was 18. So there's an example of someone who didn't really probably truly grasp the power of what it means to start menstruating and and how dangerous that can be. And the next thing you know, you know, my father was, he was a competitive dancer and a drag racer and hung out with lots of women. And the next thing you know, he's off running around having sex with his dance, dance partners and she's left all alone and not getting any financial support. And ultimately had to raise three kids all by herself working two eight hour a day back to back waitressing jobs to pay a babysitter to look after us. And I 
even though I don't have a lot of memory of that early, those early years, I do know that I failed the third grade and I couldn't read. And I remember being very depressed as a child and feeling like the world was very confusing and wondering why my mother was never there. And whenever I would see her, she was exhausted. And in my many meditations, healing meditations and doing various techniques that I was working on to, to heal myself, but also to learn how they work to help others heal, I would have visions of my mother coming home just exhausted and just there was just nothing left of her. And as a little boy, all I could think of is how can I help her? How can I help her? And I just felt paralyzed by it. And I think it, I think it ultimately created uh, what would be now today called a learning disorder. And um, that failure of reading in the third grade created such a disdain, such a, a, a dislike of reading because it was probably the first time in my life I felt really judged, like something was wrong with me. And it led to me not reading a book cover to cover ever until I was 21 years of age. I hated schoolwork. I hated reading. And it wasn't until I found something that truly interested me that I read a book cover to cover and uh, that was Nutrition, A Holistic Approach by Rudolph Ballantyne, MD. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> <laughs> so the, 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 the great spirit works in some strange ways. That's one thing I've learned. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's amazing. So your childhood has had uh, both some challenges in it, such as parents getting a divorce and some abuse by a male that set the stage for growth and development challenges, which you've shared to, with me in our previous discussions, and an, a less common challenge of being an athlete that had to find their way into life beyond athletics. So I'm wondering if you can share what happened to you through these experiences and what you've had to work through to make meaning out of it all. Yeah, I don't, I don't recall the abuse by the male. I, I'm not sure what you, what you, um, I, didn't you tell me that somebody, uh, pulled your swimsuit down or? Oh yeah. That was like when I was five. Okay. Yeah. That yeah. was a long, long time ago. Yeah. So I was, um, so when I was younger, I was very, uh, open and very like power, you know, I had a very powerful energy to me. I just was me and I was, you know, um, people would call like, for example, when I was a gymnast, when I was around five years old, I was so little, but they'd call me big A because I had such a powerful energy at such a young age. I just had a big personality. And so, um, you know, I, I think that at some point we had a friend who, of the family who just basically did something very inappropriate and, uh, thought it was a joke, kind of a jokey thing, but it was kind of creepy. And so uh, I was five at the time and, you know, he like put a piece of ice down the back of my swimsuit, which is very inappropriate to do for somebody, you know, you're kind of looking into their bathing suit and putting the ice down there. Um, and I just thought, you know, I, it hadn't occurred to me 
uh, until later in life that that's what pissed me off when I was five years old so much. And I was, I was really at, after that moment, I just was pissed. I was pissed at the world. I didn't want to show my body anymore. I was really wanting to cover up because I felt violated. And so it was just that one little incident that I felt like someone overstepped an adult who, you know, really, you know, whether it was innocent or not, it just, it wasn't appropriate. So that was my, uh, that was kind of what happened in that scenario. And that to me, um, I had to really, uh, kind of go back to that time and, and heal that part because I had held, um, I had some resentment and some anger around that and that we had built up over those years, um, for sure. Because I think it translated a little bit into like, I was really, I've always been really comfortable with my body. And I, especially when I was younger, I was just like free. And so then, you know, that incident afterwards kind of took that away from me in some ways. Um, and so that was, that was what happened uh, with that situation. Hi, everybody. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you've been following my work for any length of time at all, you know how important organic food and organic farming is, not only for the health of the soil and to protect all the little beings in nature from toxic chemicals and throwing nature completely out of balance, which directly affects us, but also for our own health and well-being. We all need nutrient-dense foods for body-mind well-being. And I'm so excited about the Organifi line. Organifi is a product line made of certified organic source materials. And I've checked this out personally. I can guarantee you that. One of my favorites that I've recently tried is their red juice, which has acai and cordyceps infused into it. It's a super, super tasty product. And it revitalizes skin cells, supports your metabolism, has antioxidants in it, age-fighting nutrients, helps mental clarity, it's got a lovely natural sweet flavor. And something that I found really interesting, if you go to Organifi.com and look up the red juice, they show you a price per serving comparison against Palm Wonderful, Red Bull, Gatorade, and a Starbucks latte. And Organifi red juice is actually significantly more cost effective considering not only the price, but the density of the nutrients in it. I think you'll be really amazed with this red juice, along with all their other products. If you go to Organifi.com, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com, and as you're checking out, use the code lowercase c-h-e-k-20 altogether, you will get a 20% discount on your Organifi purchases. I'm super excited to share this company. I've tested their products, my family's tested their products, and we're all behind them. And I know you're going to be satisfied because this is the real deal. This is true nutrition. Check it out. As you check out, C-H-E-K-20 to get your discount. Thanks for joining me. Hope you to continue to enjoy the podcast. And if you love it, share it with as many people as you can. There's but, a, yeah. If I could interject a little mm -hmm. bit there. What that brings up for me as a man and as a therapist it's really interesting to see that at that young age that you had a sense of right and wrong that may not have ever been explained to you, but was somehow inherently in your own awareness. You yeah. know, for example, if your father had done that and it was a joke, 
it would have probably been a very different experience, but because it was another man, yeah, uh, it triggered something in you. So I'm wondering, you know, you know, there, obviously issues of sexual abuse with children are rampant today. Um, Basil Vanderklok's book, I think it's Your Body Keeps the Score, if I remember the title right, gives you the statistics on physical, emotional, mental, and sexual abuse amongst children. And when I read that book, I was actually shocked that they were as high as they are. And um, so when I, I think what I would like to draw out of you as a woman is, do you think that that's a common experience for girls that are that young to have this sense of invasion when people might be doing young men or men might be doing these things that they don't think are really uh, invasive, but potentially could be something that just like you has a, a very profound effect on the psyche of that young girl. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I really, I would think uh, in this day and time, it'd be different because I think people are a little bit more apprehensive to just go up and touch a child, you know, or, or do something that's going to be questionable just because of, like you said, all the, all the now the things coming out about sexual abuse with children. Uh, I think that uh, some of the work that I've been, that I have done with John McMullen and journeys of wisdom has brought to my attention that, you know, some people need to really probably in, in most situations, um, we really need to ask for an invitation to touch sometimes to touch someone that we don't know, or, you know, or w that we feel like maybe apprehensive. Now that doesn't have anything to do with consent or, or that whole conversation between two people who are, who are, you know, having, you know, sexual relations and those kind of things or going on a date. This just has mostly to do with between adult and a, and a child, you know? So, um, I, I always ask, you know, permission when it, when it's not my children, you know, and, or, you know, I, I have, I have, I, I have space and, and I give them space because I think sometimes we, we tend to think of kids as, you know, not, um, like they don't have autonomy, you know? Uh, yes. and so I, but they do. And it's just because they're smaller and they don't, either not as developed as adults, they still have autonomy. And so you have to have respect for them, you know, and, uh, and give them space and, and, and ask permission. You know, I think that's really important because they're people too. And you can't just go in and just, even if it's something loving, like going in for a hug or something, if it's a stranger, it can be very overwhelming to kids sometimes, you know? So I think that, um, I think that's probably, you know, the best way to go about it if you're an adult and you want to, you know, be totally respectful. I, but I, I don't think that that was really going on when I was younger. And, and uh, you know, people would always, I felt like after, and it may have just, it's kind of hard to put it all together, but I feel like it was after that moment where I just didn't want to, I just didn't want people to come up and hug me anymore and touch me. I was just like, no, I, this is, you know, I just had felt violated and, and I was like, this isn't, this doesn't feel right to me anymore, you know? And so I think, you know, that we just have to, we have to go about these things with a little bit more consideration and realize that they're, the kids are, kids need to have respect too. That we're, I think 
for the most part, were there. You know, I feel like it almost, it goes in more of the other direction sometimes, but, you know, um, but I think as far as that, that topic goes, uh, you know, that's where we could start. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, uh, having studied a lot of information on what science says about what a child's mind is capable of, what they can perceive, um, you know, all these things that they say at this stage of brain development, they don't have a sense of this or a sense of that. Yeah. Being, being a father again now and having a three-year-old, I'm, I've, I've had conversations with Angie and Penny going, these guys are really out of the loop, man. They don't really realize how much more intuitive and aware even little kids at three years old are than science says they are. So I think Part of the problem is we've got such an academic approach to children and to sex and to most aspects of life, it completely cuts out the unrational feeling, intuitive nature that is really alive in even a child because they don't have so much mental baggage in the way or all these programmed beliefs and behaviors. So they're able to see and feel and know things that most adults don't even pick up on. Absolutely. I think you're spot on with that. I, and what came to mind when you said that was that kids, they can't really, they don't know at that age, at a young age, how to really express themselves emotionally or, or yes. you know, but they do know how to feel. They, they really tuned into their bodies, you know? So, um, so again, you know, considering that, like they're probably more in tune with their bodies than most adults, you know? So, uh, but they, but the problem is they just can't, they just don't know how to express themselves. Yeah. I also think that it's the same situation if it had happened to you as a boy, say you were a boy, not a girl, and a woman did that to you. I don't think it would have nearly the same effect. I think that little girls already have the seeds of knowing the importance of protecting their uh, sexuality or sexual access because that's inherently part of the psyche of, of a woman. Whereas I think little boys probably would have felt very, very different in that situation. I think that could definitely be true. Yeah. We, um, and you know, you get, you get the energy of protection from your father because he's supposed to protect you. And, and so there is that, there is that underlying like, energy of like, okay, I have to protect myself. And it's probably, my guess is it comes from generations of that, you know, of women feeling like they need to protect themselves. Well, my buddy Laird Hamilton, he's, he's got a special uh, medicine for those issues. He put all his girls in jujitsu <laughs> and one of them's, you know, he tells me she's like taken down six foot tall guys and she's like oh my 15, God. 16 and kicking their asses. So uh, one solution for the girls is teach them martial arts at an early age so they can um, grab, put the guy in a wrist lock and stick the ice cube in his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a great solution. I like that. <laughs> so uh, tell me about your, your journey through gymnastics and the challenge you had with um, that sort of expression of yourself coming to an end. I, I, I don't think there's that many women out there that are really uh, high-level athletes uh, compared to non-athletes, but I think it's still a legitimate transition, and that's why it's probably worth discussing. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, I've had a great run at gymnastics. I, I and competed from the age of five until I think around 22. And I went to college and did gymnastics for three years and got a scholarship and all of that. So I started from the age of five in gymnastics and I went on till the age of 22 and did it in college for three years, competed in college and got a scholarship. And so that was my goal. And I, and I accomplished that. I didn't finish out the fourth year because I just felt like I wanted to end it on a good year and felt like I had had enough and I was ready to move on with my life. So it really became my identity. And I, I, I don't know if I really kept doing it because I really loved it after a while or just because I felt like that's, that was who I was, you know? Um, but with gymnastics, you have to eventually stop doing it. You can't do gymnastics forever like you can with other sports. And so, and, and you, you literally like there's, I would not be able to get up on the balance beam and do what I used to do at all. I I would, first of all, mentally not be, be able to do it and physically definitely not be able to do it. So, um, so there has to be a cutoff at some point for all gymnasts. Um, even though now we have G- GMB, all these programs that can teach people gymnastics, there's still a cutoff at that level. So for me, um, since I had been doing it all my life and that was really all I knew and to, and, and the level at, at which I was competing, we were traveling every weekend to a different city and I, it was my life. Yeah. You know, it was my life and I didn't have a, much of a social life. I kind of felt like socially I was a little bit, uh, I didn't really have the skills to, to have a social life because I, you know, like I hadn't been around people, but my gymnastics team and didn't really know how to, how to do it. And so, um, I feel like I really missed out on a lot. So when I got to high school, I started really burning the candle at both ends. I started drinking a lot um, and I started to have lots of sex. And then that that spilled over into uh, college as well. And I really, it was a, another shit show for me, you know, and I just, I just didn't feel, I just felt like I needed to detach really heavily during that time. Uh, because I, I just couldn't handle, I couldn't handle myself. I couldn't, I didn't know what to do. You know, I just, uh, was kind of at, at the point where I just didn't, I didn't even know who I was, you know, I didn't know even if I liked myself. So, um, you know, I went through, I went through high school and college pretty insecure, you know, and, and definitely had a drinking problem at that time. I was, I wow. way overdid it. And probably that, that I, I guess that that is why my digestion was so bad by the time I hit my twenties. And, uh, so, so when I transitioned at 22 and, and decided I, okay, I don't want to go to school. I was going to school at Radford university and had gotten a college scholarship there, but mostly I was I was there for pre-physical therapy, but mostly I was partying a lot and just kind of getting by, you know, and then doing gymnastics. So I decided, okay, I need to get serious. So I I decided to transfer to Georgia State University and thought I would, uh, I thought I would apply to the physical therapy school out there and go full time with physical therapy. So I I got out there and decided I didn't want to do physical therapy. I actually wanted to get into exercise science, and so. 
I did that. I graduated after three more years of college. And so, you know, I was a gymnast, then I was a student. And then when I finished being a student, it was like, who am I? (laughs) I'm not doing anything anymore. And it was, it was like a death of self, you know? And so, um, it was a real crisis and I just, I had no idea what to do. I was crying for no reason. You know, things were really setting me off. I was getting triggered left and right. And, uh, and I just didn't, I didn't feel like I could function. It's interesting. It's kind of of interesting because you're actually describing the same symptoms as a midlife crisis. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like I've been through quite a few in my life. Uh, You know, research shows that today it's common for people to have a midlife crisis as early as 18 years of age. And, and so as you're talking and sharing this, what rises up in me is to ask you, what are some of the symptoms that mothers and fathers should be looking for in their children or teenagers that are facing these kinds of transition challenges? Well, I just um, I just interviewed uh, Deshaun Fontleroy recently, and he he runs this program called Sports Mastery. And what he does is he actually teaches young athletes how to build life skills and and you know actually the skills for even running a business and and just managing your life. And I think uh, if more parents could get involved with helping their children with these kinds of skills as they get older, because I just don't think that, uh, I think a lot of parents expect these things to be taught in school, but you really do have to uh, sit down with your kids and figure out what's going on and and find out what they, what kind of skills they need to learn because it's not that mind boggling. You know, it's, it's really just learning the skills to be an adult, to become responsible for yourself, to create accountability, uh, consistency, you know, some kind of foundation with which to navigate life, navigate relationships, you know, and those kinds of things and even finances. So those are the things that, um, I wish I had some kind of schooling in or some kind of teacher to teach me those kinds of things. Um, but I think, what I've learned throughout the years is just through personal growth, um, different things here and there. And I've picked up on how to do this. And and finally, you know, now I'm really, really feeling like I'm at the, at the stage where I am able to um, really share it with everybody else and, and teach everybody else how to do that. But I think it's, you have to, you have to get, you have to know every kid needs to know themselves and really become self-assured. And I see more and more kids that are, are like that actually these days, including my own kids. And it makes me feel really uh, very hopeful towards the future because I think that if we have, um, if we have that self-assured part of ourselves, um, you know, that knows what kind of the part that knows where you stand, no matter where anybody else stands, right? Nobody else can really influence you. You, yeah. so, you know, you, you, you got that, you know, you have that strong sense of self. Um, yeah, that, that, I think that's so important. That's called autonomy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's an, an interestingly research on weightlifting and its effects on females showed one of the primary psychological effects of women entering into a regular weightlifting program was an increased sense of autonomy, which I think is just beautiful. Absolutely. And that's what I love. That's why I love teaching 
what I do in the gym because it does create that autonomy. And especially for women who feel helpless, um, I, I was in that situation after a bad injury, you know, and, and I really got into a, a state of learned helplessness and my, my, I hired a trainer and he helped me get out of that. You know, sometimes you just have to have someone help you get out of that and start to, um, start to push you to believe in yourself again and to know that you can handle that and that you're strong and capable, you know? Yeah. As a listener of Living 4D with Paul Check, we know you're dedicated to mastery, mastering your health, mastering your profession, mastering parenting, mastering your dream. And mastery was exactly what Paul and Gavin Jennings had in mind when they created the Czech Academy. It's about creating true masters in resolving deep health challenges and masters of optimal human performance. So, how do you reach this mastery? Students at the Czech Academy learn the essential components of what it means to be a human being and to have a body. They learn to see how diet, lifestyle, exercise, and mental-emotional factors interact with one another and need to be addressed. And they are trained to use a massive toolkit of assessments to provide them with deep insights into their clients. In short, you'll learn Paul Check's entire system of holistic health from A to Z. And from the first moment of the academy, you'll practice what you learn in your own life. That's the key to real mastery and personal growth. The Academy also supports each and every student with mentorships, faculty who are themselves mastered in their fields, and a passionate community of fellow students and practitioners. That means you'll have all the support you need to implement what you learn in your life and in your practice. And you'll achieve all this for an affordable monthly fee. If you have the commitment, passion, and dedication it takes to become a true master of holistic health coaching, then we invite you to apply to the Czech Academy now. Visit us online at czechacademy.com. Now, back to Living 4D with Paul Czech. One of the, there's two things that I've recognized uh, uh, quite a bit, because as you can imagine, in my career of 35 years of working with athletes, I've had many injured athletes that come to me and they're often in specialized high schools where the entire school or a lot of them are in private schools that are schools for elite athletes, just like we have schools for kids that are, uh, have, um, you know, uh, specialty schools for kids with artistic abilities or musical abilities, or I've even heard of schools for kids that are highly advanced in their understanding and ability to use electronics and uh, I've had kids that were in elite athlete programs. I was a therapist for the U.S. Olympic uh, figure skating development team and, and was called in to do evaluations on the entire team because so many of them had injuries and, and health problems. And one of the things that I see is that a lot of parents, unfortunately, and I, I, I have empathy, but I, I think it, what I'm about to share has some negative side effects, and that is that they... Uh, get kids involved in athletic programs in order to babysit them so that they basically drop them off, leave them. And a lot of these kids will spend hours at a hockey rink or hours in wrestling class or then going into the gym and 
and and so really they they use athletic programs as sort of an extension babysitting program like they often use um uh schools or they use uh <laughs> video games and video game arcades and so what i what i see happening is is there's there's a uh, the child actually develops its sense of self and and an in extended family through the athletic environment, but they don't really learn the kinds of things that they can only learn from their mother and father. The other thing I've seen, which really has broken my heart. I, I remember one particular experience. I won't mention this person's name because this person's now very, very famous and on television commercials and all sorts of stuff. But this young man's mother brought him to me with a quite a bad knee injury and he, he was you know in pretty rough shape and i said to her this guy's going to have to go into at least 3 months of rehabilitation or this knee is probably going to end up being on an operating table but it doesn't need to be it can be effectively rehabbed at the time i think he was 16 or 17 and she just had a cow she's like no no he's got a a commercial he's got a film with Budweiser you know this is a $30,000 paycheck and I need you to do whatever you can do to get him ready for that event this weekend well this event required him to do quite an exotic athletic I can't say too much because it'll let the cat out of the bag about who this is and I need to protect his privacy and the mother's privacy but it was a, a, a dangerous stunt that he was going to do and it could have ended his entire career and and, and this guy went on to become uh, you know a multiple time gold medal winner at the olympics but th what i have seen over and over again is children being used as a meal ticket and the parents are pushing them through elite hockey programs uh, i just had an interview uh, yesterday with a famous bodybuilder ben pakulski i don't know if you're familiar with him but he's you know, top 10, Mr. Olympia and, you know, major, you know, 280 pounds, heavy on the steroids, super massive guy. But, um, and we talked about some of these things, but, you know, the research shows that 13% of uh, pop Warner boys in football are on steroids that have been given to them by their brother or their uh, big brother or father because the family thinks they have a chance of becoming a professional football player. And over and over again, I've seen parents trying to put all their eggs in this sort of using their child as an investment, like a retirement plan. And I've seen the psychological damage it does to children. And I've seen how many hours they spend, you know, eight hours a day at a skating rink or, you know, Mm -hmm. hours and hours and hours and hours of football training and watching films like they're a professional football player. And I think it's, it's quite traumatic to children and it's uh, both of these things are problematic. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that as a mother. Yeah, I think it's, it's really unfortunate. And I remember when my kids were younger and it was even starting at a young age, like in, in soccer, you know, the soccer people were really intense, you know, already yes. like when their kids are so young and I'm like, why can't we just, why can't they just have fun? Like there's a time to learn about competition, you know, and that that's development mentally, uh, there's a right time for that. But 
you really have to let kids have fun and enjoy it. And again, like we talked about earlier, uh, the autonomy and all of it, like what do the kids want? What do they really want? Do they even know what they want? Are they just doing what they think their parents want them to do, you know? So uh, that's the problem. And what's going to happen as a result of that, uh, the, the kids could become successful. In many cases, they do. Uh, and maybe that's something that the, they really want to happen. You know, maybe the kids really want that. And that some of them probably do. But I think that a lot of times you get people like, I mean, you think about, you know, unfortunately, like someone like Tanya Harding, you know, I mean, she didn't have a very stable foundational life, you know, like there sometimes then they miss those life skills and then they don't know how to, you know, do life. And to me, that's not successful. That's not a successful way to go about it. And you're not, as a parent, you're not a successful parent if you can't help your kids with life. You know, well, look at uh, look at Michael Jackson and the Jackson family. Yeah, and, and right. Look at, look at Mike Tyson. Yeah, it, um, yeah. It's you know that that's exactly what happens when when kids are uh, not given the family support and the freedom to be who they truly want to be, or at at the rate that they want to become that person. And one of the things that I find just astonishing is. Anytime I go to like a kid's little league baseball game or, or soccer game or hockey game, the parents are absolutely out of control, yelling and screaming at the kid, criticizing the child for missing the puck or missing the catch. And then, and the parents get into arguments and fights and yelling at the other kid's parents or the referee. And it's, I just, it's such a, just a terrible example by the parents for their children. Yeah, absolutely. They're, they're, you know, as a parent, you, you should be a role model for your kids. You know, the reality of it is that, and of course we make mistakes. We're not going to be perfect, but we do need to, uh, if we do make mistakes, we need to talk about it. And, and then, you know, also really be more aware of the example we're setting for the kids, you know, and if, kids are going to be learning from you. <laughs> They're going to be doing what you're doing. And, I, and believe me, I've made so many mistakes as a parent. I, I, there's so many things that I did that were not, you know, perfect at all. Uh, you know, but I think that uh, if you can always go back and just try to uh, do, if you just do your best, that's really all you need to do, really. Just do your best and you're human. So if you make a mistake, you know, use it as a learning opportunity for your kids. I think part of the problem is, yes, we all make mistakes. My God, I mean, I made a lot of mistakes. I became a father when I just turned 18 and my son's going to be 40 this summer. But with Mana, you know, I'm, see, he came when I was 54, I think. I'll be 58 this August and uh, Zoe will be born um, in July. And I think I'm really only in my fifties, really mature enough to be an effective parent. And with Paul Jr., I was very intense and I was very, you know, outcome oriented, get this job done, study this. You've got to learn this more like a drill sergeant than a father. But I think what I'm leading to here is it's, it's from a parenting perspective and, and why this is relevant is because of your challenge as a kid that we're talking about. Um, I think a lot of adults have forgotten the importance and of and what it means to be a child and and how we've gotten caught in this academic 
grading system and comparing and contrasting my kids got A's, yours doesn't, or my kid's a great athlete, yours aren't. And it, it really uh, sets a huge polarity up in the mental emotional field of the child because they begin to identify themselves by the parents and, and teachers' judgments of themselves. An example is, you know, I use art therapy in, in a lot of my workshops. And in HLC3, I used to use mandala therapy. And, and countless is the number of times in, in HLC training and PPS workshops that I would initiate an art therapy exercise. And I would have people who literally would go into a state of fear or a state of panic and could not even put a pencil onto a piece of paper. And the most common reason was because when they were a child and they were doing art in some class in elementary school or junior high school, their art got criticized and they felt belittled. And that broken child still is afraid that the teacher is going to reprimand them because their art's not good enough or that it's not going to look good enough compared to other people. And as a child, I hated all that because I was a very kinesthetic child. I wasn't a mathematical, logical learner. And, you know, kind of the sad issue here is that mathematical, logical learners, according to Howard, Gardner, Howard Gardner's research, are only 5 to 8% of the human population. Mm-hmm. The, the visual learners are about 38%. The next highest group is the auditory, and the third highest uh, or, or about 15, 12 to 15%, if I remember the statistics right, are kinesthetic. And as a gymnast, you'd have been highly kinesthetic. And, and only 5 to 8% of children in school are naturally mathematical, logical learners. But 95% of all education at every level of our education system worldwide is conveyed through mathematical, logical edu- uh, uh, education or learning style. So yeah. we're actually setting kids up for failure. And then we have all these grading systems and, and judgments that are labeled on them. And so that really not only sets the child up for a really challenging inner life, but it sets the parents up for having experiences with their children that they often don't understand because they don't know why their kid's depressed, why their kid's anxious, why their kid's developing anxiety. And so it results in all these kids getting put on drugs and being labeled as dysfunctional with some diagnosis. And the parents often don't realize that this is actually a direct byproduct of the environment that the parents are either creating or supporting by sending them into these uh, types of schooling environments, which really are not designed for the way a child grows and develops. And Steiner did extensive research into this and built the entire Waldorf school system to protect children from that, which is why I have Mana in a Waldorf school system. And I've had many parents bring their kids to me they're having all sorts of health and mental, emotional challenges. And every time I've ever been able to encourage them to get their kids into a Steiner school, I've had a 100% track record of those parents telling me it was a godsend and it radically changed their child, their family dynamics. And so, you know, these are issues that are commonly overlooked and they're relevant because mothers are usually the ones that have to spend most of the time dealing with the fallout from these kinds of challenges. 
Yeah, that's exactly true. And I think that, um, I think that suppression is a bitch, you know, (laughs) you just have to, you you have to realize that. um, And I think sometimes the kids don't even realize it when they're going through it. They're depressed, but they don't know why they, because they just don't have any freedom. I think anybody, if you don't have freedom in your life, you're going to be depressed, you know? Um, And so, you know, I think schools like the uh, the Waldorf School are they're amazing. Um, I almost put my oldest in one of in a Waldorf school. Uh, at the time, we lived in Atlanta, and the school was super small, and they wanted to put him in a grade lower than he had already. It was kind of it was so it just didn't work out. But uh, but we I ended up putting my kids in schools that could give them freedom, the freedom that they needed to express themselves the way they want to express themselves. And so that seems to have worked out pretty well. And now they're at a high school that's very small and it's a, um, it's a democratic school. So they are able to have freedom and have a say in things, but uh, there is enough structure for them to be able to learn how to also, um, you know, develop those life skills as well. And, but also learn how to creatively express themselves, which I think is, is really important. You know, if we're always going through life, like I felt like, you know, my parents were, were wonderful. And I think that they always, my dad would always say, you know, if you ever don't want to do gymnastics, please, please let me know. I think a big part of that was probably like, cause it was expensive, you know, but, uh, but he was just like, if you ever want to quit, it, it's totally fine with me. He was always very supportive of that. But I think for me, it was, that it was, again, like I said earlier, it was my identity. It was who I kind of became. I didn't know what else to do. And so um, I also was very, I also really have always been real resilient. So I kind of just put up with a lot of stuff just because I can. And I'm learning now that that isn't always necessary. Like, why do we put ourselves under this extra stress just because we can, you know? But um, But going back to what I think you know, needs to happen is just somehow, and I don't know how this would ever happen, but, you know, somehow give the kids uh, a a structure from what, where they can learn, but also some freedom within that to, to be able to learn how to express themselves, because that's really what it comes down to is, and that as an adult is what I've always been, you know, working to learn is, is how can I express myself right now? Like how, cause that's just so healing, you know, to be able to do that in many different creative ways. And um, it's always different for me. It's always changing, you know, but, um, but can, how can we teach our kids, you know, how to do this and, and how can we look at our kids and be like, oh, you know, remember what it was like to be a kid and, isn't it in all of us that we want to be childlike to some extent? Why are we trying to make our kids like adults? Well, I think, and I teach this in my HLC training program. I don't know if you remember any discussions on this, but it's something that I talk about a lot. And that's that we have to have a balance between the the rational and the unrational or the, you know, what we can weigh and measure as an outcome and what we can't weigh and measure. You know, you cannot weigh and measure love. You can't weigh and measure play. If it's genuine play, there is no outcome. It's who cares what the picture that you just drew looks like? Who cares if the sand castle isn't perfect? You know, like these are the things that are ultimately what we have to have in us or we become so programmed to measure our own sense of self and success by how 
the outcome is, how much money did we make? How good of a grade did we get? How beautiful was the art piece? How perfect does your clothing look? And this is inherently tied to a real problematic issue in people of all ages and children, which is the perfectionism, which is one of the causes of one of the primary causes of addiction. So I, I think what we really need to do for all of us at every age is look carefully at our life and see, are we making time to do things that we enjoy, but we give ourselves permission not to weigh and measure the outcome. And I find that it takes quite a lot of training with my patients to get them into that place. And I do things like drumming, rattling, art, rock stacking, and a wide variety of things. And it's amazing to me how emotional they get when they tell me, oh, you know, I, or I'll be out working with them stacking rocks and their stack will fall over and they'll just get right pissed off and, <laughs> you know, make fists and, and growl and like, you know, God damn it, what the hell's wrong with these fucking rocks? <laughs> and, you know, and I'm like, yeah. well, they're just rocks and they're just enjoying the play. It's, it's okay. It's only a rock stack. Don't worry about it. That's the fun. We just do it again. That's what we're here to do. In fact, my son, Mona, thinks knocking them down is more fun than building them, you know? <laughs> yes, of course. Yeah, that's, I mean, and we have to, and that's one thing we can learn from our kids is how to play. You know, that's, it, I think being an athlete doesn't really teach you how to play. Like you're, it's a serious business, you know? And so, uh, and like you said, like the intangibles, uh, things that we can't really put in a box, you know, we can't really measure. Those are the things that really end up being most important as you get older. And you really always are putting that on the back burner. I find when you're busy, 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 rushing, rushing, rushing. But when you look at it, when you really just, you know, kind of get down to it, those are the things that matter most. And if you, you know, if you talk to someone who's dying, they're going to say that the relationships, love, you know, did I have fun in my life? Yeah, did exactly. I find joy in my life? That, those are the things that matter most. As the old saying goes, nobody dies wishing they'd worked more. Absolutely not. Yeah. And, and, you know, work can be very satisfying if you're doing something that you love to do. And it's, it's, but again, you got to find the balance there. Yeah. Well, how common do you feel such challenges are amongst women today? And how often do you find unresolved challenges of this nature in the etiology of a woman's body mind challenges when they see you for help as a therapist? Well, I, I think one of the biggest problems is that women are going against uh, their own natural inclinations. And we're, again, overriding the urge to slow down at times. Uh, there is a rhythm, you know, that we learn, that I've learned actually from being uh, at women's gatherings, from going and um, learning uh, from other women who know the feminine and can teach me that. Uh, and even, you know, going into um, some of the goddess work, like you can really start to hone into um, all of the things that you can really uh, get and reflect from that and, and realize that we're not a lot of times practicing um, that feminine aspect of ourselves. Like we're not really honoring that. So, you know, even, so it's like in, for the sake of, you know, doing things for other people, 
not really knowing yourself enough to set really healthy boundaries, tolerating way more than maybe you should be in your life, you know, not knowing what what to say no to, uh, things that are really depleting our energy and, you know, really running us into the ground, hurting our health, uh, not getting sleep. Uh, those are things that um, are definitely, I think, are a huge barrier because we're trying to keep up with the Joneses. You know, we're trying to keep up with the men sometimes too, like with what's going on now. Uh, women, it's a fascinating time because women can do it all. Like, and that's, that's some, for me, has been, I think it's a curse and a blessing because I don't think it's a good time to try to do it all, all the time. I don't think that's a, a attribute at all. I think that, uh, it, there should be a rhythm to it. You can do some things sometimes and some things are, there's a better time for others. So, you know, for example, when you have a baby, like that's a time to slow down, you know, and, um, I know a lot of women continue to work. I tried to do it and I couldn't do it. I, I was like, it was too much. I, I said, you know, to, I said, I, I'm not going to work. I'm just going to stay at home and, and relax and enjoy this because this isn't going to happen again. So uh, I think just really paying attention to our natural rhythms uh, so that we can have hormonal balance and we don't override our need to nurture ourselves, to eat, to, to and to get nourishment in the body. Um, so I find that those are the challenges really like just even starting with, uh, handling their blood sugar properly during the day. And if you, if you don't even have the, um, wherewithal to slow down or the awareness around that, then, then that's a big problem, you know? And so you have to start there and even just starting with breathing. Cause a lot of times we're breathing very fast and, kind of keeps us in that sympathetic mode and it keeps us uh, from being able to balance our our pH and be able to digest things well and you know it makes us anxious um, many different reasons that could be as you know you know it could be unprocessed trauma it could be you know that we're just rushing through life it could be many different things but again just st- starting there and identifying why you can't slow down why can't you? You know, why can't you take some time for yourself? Why can't you find the goodness in life, enjoy life? You know, why can't you set your boundaries? Why can't well, it really, you, yeah. excuse, excuse me, but I, I, I just want to say something while it's appropriate here. And mm-hmm. that is this, everything you've just said goes right back to the inability to balance the rational, logical, outcome-oriented thinking of the male with the unbound play that's the true feminine nature. It's also interesting that, uh, not too long ago, Angie came home from a class because at the Steiner School, they actually have classes for parents. And she was quite amazed at one of the things they taught them. And they said, adults, parents on average should not play with their children because they don't know how to play. And they keep on judging the child's activities or telling that it's doing things wrong. Like you're holding the saw wrong or you're using your truck wrong. And they said that they found that it's actually very detrimental to the child's psychological development. And then unless a parent actually has spent time learning to play and can be very much like a child, it should just watch and detach and not judge and make sure that the child is safe and do nothing else. And so when we have 
school teachers in one of the best school systems ever developed by a guy who is clearly one of the most evolved human beings that ever walked this planet, telling our the parents not to play with the kids because they screwed the kids up. Well, those half of those kids are girls that end up becoming women that still don't know how to slow down and don't know how to do things that are relaxing and enjoyable that don't have an outcome that are just to relax and make themselves feel good and express their creativity. Yeah. And I think that that's everything, you know, I, as I've gotten older, uh, you, you begin to see that uh, the things that really make you unique and make you who you are is that, you know, how you express yourself, the energy that you're, that you're creating in your life, that um, your essence, you know, is it's not really what you do so much as like the other stuff, the intangible stuff really, and how you feel about yourself, you know? Yeah. Well, Einstein said you can't solve a problem with the same thinking that created it. So ultimately what that means for all of us is if we don't have creative abilities, we just keep using the same thinking to solve the problem that created the problem. Absolutely. And that makes for a lot of relationship challenges and a lot of parenting challenges and a lot of self-esteem challenges. Oh, absolutely. I, I think that you can't really, if you don't, if you don't, um, work your creative muscle, <laughs> then you're yeah. never going to be able to figure out the, you know, solutions to problems that come up. Um, so we have to, we, like I, I told my, I tell my clients, like, let's work our imaginary muscle. Just start by using your imagination, you know, go outside yeah. the box and just think of something totally crazy that you would want or that you would like to happen. You know, it doesn't have to, you know, that, that was really hard for me at first because I'm a, I'm definitely a recovering perfectionist. So I always felt like I needed to have things, you know, very kind of in order and things that, I don't know, it was really hard. I couldn't believe it at first. I was like, why is it so hard for me to use my imagination to, to extend out past maybe something I feel like is realistic for me? And, and, and it was, it was quite a, a thing to be able to see that in myself. And then start practicing. And it, it, it's really fun, but at first you feel kind of blocked. Yes. Well, I actually had to remove the mandala therapy out of HLC3. Do you know why? No, why? Because part of the exercise was I would allow each person to come up on stage and just share what their mandala meant to them or what they were experiencing as they were going through this unbound play exercise of just expressing whatever wanted to rise up in them. And so many people went into a very deep emotional catharsis and begin telling stories about how scary it was to use art and how much pain they had over judgment and how it reminded them of the fact that they'd lost their childhood and felt like they never learned to play or got to live and that their whole life was always to meet somebody's demands or, or some objective. And it brought them right face to face with their soul loss. And we're actually having a healing crisis on stage. And some of these people went into such deep crisis. I remember I had one woman that it took her about five hours to get her out of a total body catharsis where it looked like she was going into shock and it was scaring the hell out of the people in the class. And 
Of course, I knew it was happening, but it stopped me from being able to get through the teaching objectives. And basically, I, I came to the conclusion that I had to do classes just on that alone because there was so much trauma in people. And the art, you know, the thing about art therapy is the ego can't protect itself against art. So no matter what that person writes or draws on a piece of paper as an art therapist, I can read it like most people read a book. And it tells me exactly what questions to ask and where to go to uncover these traumas. But it just goes to show how deep this uh, lack of creativity um, and fear of creativity has gotten into our society. And it goes hand in hand with all the various forms of programming that people are constantly exposed to from the educational system, which doesn't teach kids how to think. It teaches them what to think. And that's another reason I like Steiner schools uh, and, and even some of the elements of Montessori because they're more, more nurturing to the child's creative self-expression. And another thing that came up in me while I was listening to you share there is that one of the most common complaints I get when I'm working with patients with various health problems, and this comes up a lot, especially any kind of problem with the pelvic girdle is that, I hear complaints from both the men and the women that their sex life is terribly boring and their partner doesn't want to do anything except the missionary position and that they wish that they could have more play and sex. And I'm wondering from your opinion as a woman, A, do you, do you find that women get bored with sex because their male partners aren't creative? And B, do you find that women themselves are inhibited about using sex as a form of unbound play, creativity, and, and connection to self and partner? Well, I think it's about communication, and I think it's about taking more responsibility for yourself instead of just saying, well, my partner doesn't want to do this, so I'm stuck here doing this, right? Um, I've done a lot of also work around uh, somatic uh, sex uh, and kind of exploring that for myself. And um, I've had a teacher who's taught me about these things and, um, and you know, it's really about discovering first what you like. So if you want to try some new things in the bedroom, then you try it on yourself first. You, you yeah. have a session with yourself and you start exploring that and then you can teach your partner to do that with you, you know, but if you, you can't expect your partner to know what you like, unless you know what you like first. But you know, that's a uh, devil's play if you're a Christian or even <laughs> potentially a Muslim or from the Jewish tradition, any of the Abrahamic religions have all sorts of taboos around sex programmed in at a very early age. And we know the side effects of repressing that. Um, the newspapers are full of stories of sexual abuse in churches, especially Catholic churches. So I agree with you, but as a guy who suggested these very things to people, you wouldn't believe the kind of reactions that come out of people. Yeah. I think, I think some people maybe aren't ready for that and they aren't ready to take responsibility for themselves yet there. Um, it can be, uh, there can be a lot of things as we know around sex that, um, people experience. Uh, there's a lot of triggers. There's a lot of trauma, especially if you, if they've gone through, like you said, um, a religious, uh, system that has taught them that it's bad and there's that's a problem within itself uh not really helping women know their own power with that and and that their body is just 
amazing and it's it's such a an amazing healer for both themselves and their partner you know it's and uh yeah yeah there's just i think if they're at that point there's definitely some other work to be done and and so maybe you know some processing of uh trauma with that or beliefs around why that is you know because it's not really it's something that we're taught for sure right that we're because uh, uh, sex is a total natural thing it's it's more natural than anything yeah we should have a good relationship with it but i think yes. that people sometimes again also like what is your relationship with your body? How do you feel about that? And again, that always comes back to you. And and you, if you can't touch your own body, if you can't have a session with yourself, a love session, then that's that's another thing to think about. Like why, you know? Yeah, it's uh, yeah. There's so many things I could say right now because of my experiences with all this as a therapist and as a human being. But um, we can save that for another interview. Um, <laughs> When we last met to prepare for this interview, you shared that worthiness is a core issue for many women, and it comes down to not feeling worthy enough, not being important enough to set time aside to be with oneself. And you shared that we women make ourselves small and then compensate by doing things for all sorts of other people. So from, from me as a male and a therapist, I'm very interested in your opinion as to what the uh, source of this core challenge for women is well, I think as we said earlier with the when we talked about sex, I think it's the same thing. It's what we've been taught, and uh, it depends on your upbringing, of course. And I think things are definitely changing for women, but uh, I think that part of it is. I, I want to say that it has to do with abundance to some extent. That was what it was for me. I had a block around creating my own abundance as a woman and needing a man to do that for me, which was okay. I mean, I think there's nothing wrong with that. I think there's it's great to uh, to do that because uh, you know it was wonderful to have that have my husband provide me with abundance and and finances during the time when I was pregnant and having a child where I couldn't work. You know, so those are the things like that is a way that you can look at it as uh, getting into the feminine by surrendering. You know, that's a huge, that's very powerful actually. And so you're surrendering, surrendering to the masculine who's going to create a container for you and keep you safe and secure. So that's a beautiful thing. And I love actually tapping into that myself, but I also love creating my own abundance. And so with that, I had to like look at my own self-worth and see what I, how I've, how much I valued myself because I'm running a business and I have to be comfortable asking for uh, enough money that I'm satisfied with that, that it, it also compensates for the value that I see as you know, how, what the service I'm providing people and how much they value that by paying me. So, uh, you know, I think women haven't been working. They haven't been in the workforce as long as men have. It's not in our nature so much to really provide. Uh, and so uh, hopefully that's going to come across well, but, uh, you know, I just think that, uh, you know, we're pretty new to this whole abundance thing and creating our own abundance uh, through money, right? So um, with that goes self-worth. And so in our society, I think that money is very connected to 
worth in our society. And we, we connect, you know, how much money we can make to how much we're worth, right? Um, and how much we can contribute to society and those kind of things. But things like having children, you know, it's not a paid position so much. And then so you don't feel like you're really contributing to society because you're not creating money, right? So, um, so going through all of that and, and realizing that it's really, I mean, creating money is a part of it and that's a fun part of it. It's, but really getting down to the, to the meat of it is how do you value yourself? How much value do you give yourself? How much do you feel like, um, how much do you feel like you're worth, you know, do you feel worth, um, uh, being around people that love you, you know? Uh, do you feel like you're worth, uh, setting boundaries around things like going to bed on time, like going to bed at a decent time, like before 10 PM, right? Um, do you feel worth putting really good food in your body? Do you feel like you're worth it to slow down and to give yourself that play time or that, uh, you know, downtime, you know, those are, th- and, and so if you're having trouble, it kind of is all related. So if you're having trouble doing those things for yourself, nurturing yourself, uh, feeling taken care of, you know, it all, it all comes down to worth. And that all also stems from the relationship, of course, that we had with our parents, you know, and how your mom loved you. So that's going to, that's going to also reflect, you know, how your mom loved you is going to reflect how much worth you feel in the world, how much you feel and can trust that you're going to be taken care of. And that is a lot related to self-worth. Yes. Um, interestingly, you know, you've mentioned abundance, but you've only really mentioned it in connection with financial abundance. What are other forms of abundance that you feel are important for a woman to create so that she has an enhanced sense of self and, and self-worth? I definitely think connection is a huge one, you know, and community yeah. uh, and, and, and relationships and, and love. Those are all those are all forms of abundance as well, and are very important to me personally. And I don't think that I think if I just had the money without all of that, it would be a very shitty life, you know. Well, you know the old Beatles song, "Money won't buy you love." <laughs> That's true. Yeah, you have to, and, and so you know it can all work together. It's just that, and one's not, you know. So, but I think that. Um, we have to like learn the dance of all that, you know, and where we are in our life and, and how much, you know, what kind of abundance we want to create for ourselves, kind of what's, what's, um, what's needing more support in that area, you know, um, because you do want to be able to take care of yourself financially because that's a, that's a security issue. Right. Um, but you also want to be able to feel like you belong and you're loved. So that's, that's also equally important. I think part of the challenge though, that, we all face, I, as you know, I teach I before we always. And, and I think most of us didn't learn to love ourselves as the basis of generating love so that we had authentic love to share with others because our sense of how lovable we are is largely determined by the judgments of our parents, our school teachers, and our peers. So it seems to me that we've got this real challenge with uh, loving ourselves, not only as women, but as, as human beings in general. 
Absolutely. That's what I teach my clients. And, and that's a big part of uh, the course that I just created called Build Your Food and Fitness Foundation. It's it's all about learning how to love yourself and, and how to nurture yourself and give yourself um, what you need to start bringing in those things that are really your foundation for health. And um, I, I just talked about this on my last episode on my podcast about how really to the degree that you can love yourself is is the the amount that you can give others love like you can't give people more love than you can give yourself you know what i mean uh and so i mean it's just really it's just hard you know <laughs> like otherwise you're just a martyr or you're or you're extending yourself too much you're depleting yourself you can only give others as much as you can give yourself Yes. It's such a common theme when I'm doing therapy with people, uh, particularly when I take them into shamanic healing ceremonies with plant medicines, that I actually, my soul gave me a chant to use, which I have them sing with me for quite some time to get harmonized before we do the medicine ceremony. And I end up singing it quite a lot in the ceremony when I see people struggling. And I will share the song with you because you might find it useful. And it's very simple. I am happy. I am healthy. I am whole. I take my love wherever I go because I'm happy and I'm healthy and I'm whole. I take my love wherever I go. Oh, yes, I'm happy and I'm healthy and I'm whole. I take my love wherever I go, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> That's beautiful. And, you know, when people chant that for a half an hour or more, yeah. it starts to sink into their soul and they realize that they can be happy, they can be healthy, and they can be whole, and they can take their love wherever they go. But we have to be brave enough to do that for ourselves and until we learn to do that, paradoxically, we are trapped in the eternal child archetype, and it can make relationships very tricky because we're always dependent upon our partner or our spouse to make us happy. Yeah, and that's a really hard place to be, uh, and that codependency. Not it a, is. Yeah. And, you know, because I'm speaking about my approach to shamanic healing, and, and my previous question about what are some of the forms of abundance other than financial, there's five key questions that I ask that I learned from studying shamanic traditions when I'm doing an assessment on somebody. And interestingly, if you listen to these questions, they all turn out to be questions of a unique type of abundance. Question number one, when did you stop enjoying stories? When we enjoy stories, we really have a chance to get into the story. We become one with it. If you watch kids when they're watching movies, they they actually start singing the songs and dancing the dances and they get so immersed in it. It's it's, you know, for better or worse, they go into a trance state. But any of us, you, you watch people watching movies at a theater, they'll be crying and they'll be laughing and they'll be angry at the villain because they're truly getting the experience of the abundance of a story. And I think there's a lot of room for us to do story work. And I do a lot of work with my patients on writing their own myth or their own life story and then saying, okay, now let's realize it's only a story. 
And we can edit the story. You can change your character. You can be as powerful or as sexy or as anything you want to be. And again, it's amazing how people have such a tremendously hard time editing that story and being creative enough to make their story interesting and exciting to them. And I say, just pretend that you're writing the story for your kids or your future kids, and it should be engaging for a kid that's 10 to 12 years of age. And it's tremendously hard for them to do that. But there is a story, is a very powerful form of abundance. The next question is, when did you stop singing? And (laughs) most people tell me, I don't even remember sometime when I was a child, but when I would sing, my mother would tell me I had a lousy voice or my dad would tell me to shut up. So they've repressed their voice. But, you know, I find singing is such a powerful healer. And, and it, yeah. it's not like you have to make up your own songs. You can drive down the road in your car <laughs> singing to your favorite music or yeah. singing in the shower. Um, one of the things I love is seeing parents take their kids or do karaoke with their kids because oh, they yeah. really get into it. It's so, so much fun. I mean, it's just fun. Everything that you're saying is it's just all fun. Like when did we lose sight of fun? Right. Totally. Yeah. It's, but when did you stop? Yeah. When did you stop enjoying stories? When did you stop singing? When did you stop dancing? Right. Exactly. Wow, I think, man. I think dancing is, is probably more important for women than it is for men because it helps move kundalini energy through their body and trapped emotions out of their body. And women are in general, in my observation, more natural at, at just letting themselves go in dance. You know, you know, white guys have the the common stigma <laughs> of the white guy dancing, he, you know, looks like a robot with a, a, you know, spasm in his ass and he can't move. But my experience of dancing with women throughout my life is they often inspire me and they're very good at moving their energy. And the more they get out of their heads and just become one with the music, the more of of a rhythmic abundance they create and a connection to their body. And I'm amazed. Sometimes I'll just ask clients of mine when I'm working with them, I'm going to put on some music. I just want to see you dance or dance with you. And a lot of them cannot dance. I've had tremendous numbers of males that are just locked up. They can't dance. They have that same sort of reaction as if I just asked them to do a piece of art. But I think that there's tremendous creativity and abundance for all of us, women and kids and uh, men in dance. Yeah, I think, and I think it's a process for a lot of people. I, I remember being in that, that position, you know, where I was just, I felt real uncomfortable doing things like that. And, and it wasn't until really midlife where I just started doing it. It just felt so good. And, and, you know, singing, like, like you said, you know, storytelling, really getting into all of those things dancing I've been doing for a long time. But the thing about dancing is uh, you can take a dance class. Like I've always been very formal with dancing, but to actually just free dance is a whole nother thing. Right. So you just, all you do is you just put some music on. You could do it like start by just dancing by yourself in your home. You don't have to do it in front of anybody, but just start doing that. You know Um, it maybe just, if people are uncomfortable doing that, like singing in front of other people or dancing in front of other people, then start just doing it 
on your own at home and see how that feels, you know? Or, yeah. you know so, but it, I think sometimes people just need these things in stages because we have been, we've put so much armor on as adults, you know, to protect ourselves that, you know, and, and Brene Brown talks about this. We aren't vulnerable anymore. We're not practicing vulnerability. And so that really weakens us in a lot of ways because we aren't moving our emotions through. We're, we're suppressing a lot of things. We're not really bringing the true, our true selves out into the world. We're, we're suppressing it and, and pretending like, you know, we're trying to act like what we think people want us to act like, but that's not really serving anybody. It's not, it's not, it's not in, um, I guess, really helping the world's creative expression, you know, when people are doing that. So, you know, start somewhere, I would say with that. And and you could also start creatively writing about your own story and maybe write a new story. Like you said, you help your clients with write a story that is going to be um, th- with an outcome of how you would desire the outcome be, you know? Yeah. You know, the other thing is for mothers putting on some music that their kids like and just dancing with the kids. I, th- I think, my experience of children is they're very uninhibited about dance and yeah. two thing two things my little boy Mono loves to do he loves to clean we've found that is <laughs> if if we just ask him to help us like he'll help penny out in the garden for hours at a time and just be the most amazing little guy he just loves to help so he loves to clean he loves to hang out with the cleaning lady when she comes and he'll polish his toys he almost always wants to take a fire truck or a dump truck in the shower or the bathtub with him because he wants to clean it. But when he's cleaning the house and vacuuming, he loves to dance to the music. And so we all start dancing with him. And the next thing you know, we're all having a dancing cleaning party. And and it's such a a beautiful form of abundance in self-expression and freedom and letting go of attachment to uh, judgment or outcome. Absolutely. I, I love that. That's such a fun family activity. That sounds like a, a ton, a ton of fun for you guys. That's uh and, and that's that is the key, you know, having fun together is is just especially as a family is so important. And one thing you can do, just so you know, Paul, like when your kids become teenagers, you can dance, you know. Um, in front of them and they'll be really embarrassed. That's a great way to embarrass them is to dance in front of your kids when they become teenagers. And, um, you know, my husband and I will dance and when, uh, cause my son loves rap music and when he puts it on, we'll dance just to, and he gets totally embarrassed, but you know, it's fun. <laughs> well, I don't think my, my kids are going to be embarrassed to dance with dad. And by then, you know, already so many kids are smoking pot these days. I'm I would say, look, if you're already smoking pot, then smoke some pot and dance. It'll, at least the plant spirits will teach you how to live a little bit better. So I'd rather have them smoking pot and dancing than getting put on attention deficit drugs and depression drugs and anxiety drugs. I mean, we have the highest rates of suicide amongst children of all ages that we've ever had in the history of humankind. So I say, if that's the issue, break out a little organic pot and everybody get over their inhibitions and become whole. Yeah, well, what I meant by that was just that, you know, I think teenagers don't ever want to see their parents being, you know, sexual so much and dancing together like that. 
Uh, yeah, I, you know, I, it's just something that can, I was just joking around, but yeah. no, it's cool. I mean, everything you're saying is true, but it's I'm really just, funny. Yeah, it's really I, funny. I'm, I'm I'm very confident that my kids won't have that problem because I'm I'm not going to put them in a situation where mom and dad are unusual and we're all so natural with them. It's just like yeah, uh, it'll be like you know a, a bunch of guys in a shower at a, at a, in in the change room after a football game or something, just rocking out to their favorite music. And you'll know who Mon is because he'll be cleaning the locker room while he's dancing. But, you know, <laughs> that's the, great that he loves to clean. I would, that, that's a bonus. Yeah, it yeah. is. It's, it's fun. He, he's so cute. I don't know where he got it, but he just seems <laughs> to, to dig it, you know? And now our, our next question from the shaman is when did you stop enjoying being alone with yourself? And I find that a huge percentage of people, patients, students, just have a really hard time being alone with yourself. And how can you really enjoy the abundance of the majesty, the mystery, and the beauty of who you are unless you spend time with yourself? And and if you don't have that abundance, you're already in deep shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it. It's we have plenty of things to distract ourselves now, right? So we don't ever yeah. have to really be alone, which is kind of unfortunate. But uh, if you could start definitely practicing that and feel what it feels like to be alone, if you have anxiety around that, then you know what what's that about? Well, one of the paradoxes that I see is a guy who's you know spent a lifetime studying spirituality, mysticism, religion is that one of the one of the kind of um what's the right word for it one of the paradoxes of human beings today with all the social cultural and religious programming is they keep looking for god outside of themselves as though god is an object or an old man in the sky or something that they can uh encapsulate mm-hmm. in, a, in a sense but the reality of it is the journey to find yourself God outside of yourself is a very long one. I mean, if you died right now, a hundred years from now, you're moving at the speed of light. Your soul would still be in the Milky Way galaxy and you got about a hundred billion galaxies to go, but you can find the majesty of that mystery right inside your own heart and your own body. And I think if people enjoyed the, or, or, or took time to truly and enjoy being with themselves and explore their inner worlds through meditation, active imagination, um, even contemplative prayer, or just listening to the sounds of nature, mm-hmm. uh, going for nature walks by themselves. You know, there's a, 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 a many ways to do it, but it, it would bring, I I know I have to have that. I I have a strong link to the hermit archetype. And if I don't have that time with myself, I feel like I'm dying when I work with other people and do things for other people. So I learned as a therapist that if I, and, and I went through a midlife crisis because I didn't have time enough to be with myself. And I felt like I was just bleeding myself into everybody's problems and solving this problem and this gut and this back and this neck and this broken relationship and that broken business. And I got to the point where I was just so desperate to be alone. I didn't even care if my business lit on fire and burned as long as I was actually going to join a Zen monastery just to go 
be with people that like to be alone. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, no, I'm very much the same way. I have to carve out time every day for just to be by myself so I can recharge. I think it's very important. Either, you know, one of my favorites is getting out in nature. I do a lot of hiking and I like that just being quiet, not having a phone um, other than to take pictures with, but just, you know, not, uh, not really even having a signal or anything and just walk and, you know, things come up. I'm able to really process a lot that has been happening throughout the day or the week for myself when I'm, when I have that time, but otherwise I wouldn't be able to process a whole bunch, you know, and it would just kind of get stuck. I kind of feel like if I didn't have that time for myself, well, you can never learn to hear the voice of your own soul unless you bring your turn your ears around 180 degrees and bring your consciousness to the voices within. And most of us uh, in the world today have so many complexes, as Jung would define them, as subpersonalities that we've created due to fragmentation through pain and trauma that until we start really listening to those voices, we often don't know who it is that's reaching for the food when they're not hungry or reaching for the drugs when they're not in pain or acting out in ways that are damaging in relationship to self and others. And then wondering, why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why did I do that again when I'm watching and I know that I don't need to do that? And if we don't spend time alone with our ears turned inward, we really never get to know what parts of ourselves are happy, what parts of ourselves are broken, and we don't have the time to go in and be our own parent and our own therapist, which is really just seeing that inside of us there's a lot of broken kids that all need the same nurture that we did as kids. But if we keep waiting for somebody else to do it for us, well, then we end up in a doctor's office and, and it comes in a pill bottle, not in the form of genuine connection. And nobody else can give us that kind of love. We have to give it ourselves. And that is a form of abundance that can't be bought at any price. Yeah, that's very true. And it's it's probably the most important of all the abundances, you know, like it's just love is love for self. It, it just doesn't, there's not much you can do if you don't have that, you know, if you don't ha- and g- being able to reflect and having some quiet time for yourself, actually being able to slow down it is just crucial. And, and the final question of the key questions that a shaman asks is when did you stop enjoying and having a sense of awe for the magic and the mystery of life? <laughs> and how that. do we, how do we do that? If we don't have time to be with life, to be with ourselves, to sing, to dance, to enjoy stories, you know, to, yeah. if, if we don't do that, then where is the magic and the mystery of life? It just becomes, did I get promoted? Am I beautiful enough when I look in the mirror? Do I have the right car to be cool? Do I have the most updated iPhone? Do I have the in vogue shoes? Do I have my Michael Air Jordans, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we we end up really identifying ourselves and our sense of abundance becomes 100% externalized into objects and into the objective but none of those things give any value or connection to the subjective which is what's witnessing it all to begin with but externalizing that sense of connection to some object 
which limits oneself to the to the ends of that object, the front bumper to the back bumper of my car. So someone's car gets a ding in it and they go into a crisis, you know? <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it, that's a huge problem. And it, it loops back to what we started out. It loops back to what we started talking about, which was, um, you know, uh, the external validation in, in, in what most kids experience when they're athletes. It's, it, you know, you you have to learn how to, you have to learn who you are. And that's, otherwise, you're, you're going to constantly be going through life trying to get validation from others. And many people will influence you. And I think that's a big problem with what's going on right now, especially with the, all the pharmaceuticals right now and, and a lot of the, uh, the vaccine issue and, and all these things and, you know, and the abortion stuff, like so many things are coming up right now. And so many people feel like they, they have, you know, the right to tell people how to live their life when they don't even really know, they've probably not, uh, you know, gotten clear on how they, they want to live their life or about themselves first, you know? So we got to get clear about ourselves before we can start really serving other people. We have to well, start and, there. Yeah. Until you, know? you do, you don't know whose ideas you're just being a music box for. You're like a, a, yeah. a, a, a like a jukebox in a disc, uh, in a, yeah. in a bar, someone throws a quarter and off you go singing some song that ultimately turns out to be something that is potentially not only making you sick, but making your family sick. Yeah. There's no way to know where influencers are coming from if you don't know yourself first. So, you know, you could be, I mean, geez, you're, you could still be living out your parents' values for all you know. You don't really know, you know, until you start investigating that and really looking into it. Well, yes, I think I might've quoted this earlier, but, you know, Jung made it very clear that the task of all children is the unfinished lives of their parents. <laughs> yeah. Well, Allison, I'm totally enjoying our conversation. Thank you for sharing your love and your wisdom as a woman, as a mother, as a therapist. Now I'd like to dive into an area that is something I think is really, really on the rise in, in many ways due to a breakdown in our social uh, social, religious, cultural programming. And, you know, many people get married with the till death do you part concept and believe they'll burn in hell if they don't stick it out. But as we discussed earlier, the average uh, marriage today only lasts 2.5 years and research shows the average person gets married three times in their lifetime. So that's a lot of sinning going on. And there's <laughs> Uh, the statistics all the way back to the Kinsey report and even more modern statistics show that even in so-called monogamous relationships, there's a tremendous amount of uh, behind the door cheating going on, which leads to more guilt, shame and pain and health problems. So you had previously shared with me that uh, you've been with your husband since you were 24 and he 25 and have started exploring uh, multiple partners and that he had fallen in love with another woman around 2011, which created a lot of separation uh, in the relationship. And so, you know, since that process has began with you, I'm just curious, where are you at inside yourself? Um, how do you feel the uh, incidence of this is in women that you work with. Uh, do you feel that 
there's women that are maybe exploring these multiple partner relationships in secret going against their marriage vows that's leading to stress? Do you find that this is related to some of their physical, mental, emotional challenges? And where are you at in your own process? And what are some of the realizations that you've come to about this issue? Well, yeah, that's a that's a big question. And um, maybe I should start with kind of how I got into all of this uh, with, with my husband, uh, you know, first of all, we've been together, we were together in college. So we, we've been married since I was 24, but we've been together actually since I was 21. So, uh, we've been, you know, married for almost 22 years now. And, you know, when you grow up with somebody, when you really are a kid, when you meet and you, and you grow throughout the years with someone, you start to wonder at some point, uh, are we together because we want to be together? Or are we together just because it's convenient and we kind of have been together for so long? You know, we're not really sure. And the other the other component to that is you realize that, well, um, you know, who am I apart from this person? We've we've meshed so much um, as as we you know throughout the years we've gotten so intertwined it, with our relationship that we've lost sight of who we are as individuals and who our va- and what our values are as un- individuals. So that's where I was. And it was quite a mess when, now give you, my, my husband, he is a wonderful man. I love him so much. And he came to me uh, before anything happened. It was more of an emotional connection. He and this other woman had become really good friend, close friends very quickly. And it kind of hit him pretty unexpectedly too. He had never experienced this before. He wasn't expecting to experience this, but all of a sudden he had these really strong feelings for this other woman. He felt like he was in, there was infatuation for sure. And, and love, I think too, you know? And so it was a very confusing time. He came to me with this and explained to me as hard as it was to, to do that. He explained to me what was going on and you know, he said, I just want to be honest with you before anything was to happen. Like, this is what's going on. I don't know what to do. And to hear something like that, to hear your husband say, like, I don't know what to do because he'd always been the person that knew what to do. It was, it was like, again, the floor I felt like had just been taken out from under me. And I was, I was in total shock, you know? And for me, um, I'm kind of an all or nothing person, or I used to be more of that, I guess. So I was like, you're either with me or you're, you're, you're not with me, you know, like, (laughs) and so, um, I was, I, I kind of was, my first response was just, I need to, I need to get out of this situation. I need to leave like this, you know, that was what I would always do is just run, you know? And so I couldn't really do that. And there was really nowhere for me to go. And I kind of had to stay in the situation. So, we, you know, we, we went through so many things emotionally, went through so many emotional roller coasters. And, and I would say, I said to him, like, can you just cut it off with her and not see her? They couldn't stop. They couldn't like not see each other. It was, they tried and they couldn't. So, um, and then nothing sexual ever happened, but they just had this intense like connection. And it was really hard because I felt like, what I had always known uh, about relationships was that you're with someone forever. You know, if you're married, you're with that person and there's no, 
there's nothing I'd never had any role models that taught me any different. I didn't have anybody in my life that had any kind of a, an open relationship or anything that would show me that there's any other options out there, you know, um, other than you, Paul, actually, because <laughs> that was when I knew you too. But, um, uh, and so I was very, it was a, it was a hard time. And, and a part of me, a big part of me died that day. I was just, you know, it, it was a kind of like the dark night of the soul kind of time. And, and so I went through that and so did he, and we got through it. And so we ended up moving to Portland. Um, and we thought, okay, well, this isn't going to happen again. This is fine. You know, we went through this and, we we decided we really wanted to be together um, after all of this, and so we're gonna we're gonna stay together. We're gonna make this work, and and so we moved to Portland and thought, hey, yeah, everything's gonna be fine. We're it's a new start, you know. We're just gonna we're gonna keep moving on here. And he ends up meeting another woman that he really is attracted to and wants to have a relationship with. And I'm, I'm painting a picture of him. Some people listening might think he's, you know, a terrible person because of that, but it, you got to remember the situation was, um, this, I, I see this as like a growth opportunity for me. And I, I think the universe was telling me, no, you have to, you have to do this. You have to go through this. So, um, I was like, screw this, you know, I'm going to move out. I'm going to move into an Airbnb. I'm not going to deal with this again. This is too much stress. I ended up getting shingles and it was so, it was such a stressful time. And I went through a lot of emotional turmoil um, and he didn't, of course, want to hurt me either. And so he just, um, he, he felt horrible. We both felt horrible. It was a horrible experience. We didn't know what to do. We didn't have any kind of roadmap to know how to navigate this. How, what do you do when you have feelings for another person, but you want to stay with the partner that you're with, you know, because that was the conundrum. It was like, it would have been easy if we just decided, Hey, we just don't want to see each other again. You, you go do you, I'll go do me. But that's not what happened. We, we had a strong connection. We still wanted to be together. And so how are we going to make that work? And I was like, well, I kind of just like a monogamous relationship, but it sounds like he really wants a polyamorous relationship. So what do we do? And so it occurred to me that you know, after much, you know, we I had gone and done some uh, some work emotionally, some emotional coaching work, and and really gotten deep down into some things. And then we went to uh, a polyamorous coach, and she coached us through some stuff, and that was really great. We learned so much from that, and we kind of it really just taught us that we needed to learn how to communicate better with each other, and uh, and that really needed to be sound, especially if we're going to dive into this because I. I decided at some point I was like, well, I just surrendered to the to the possibility that maybe this is something that I would like to, you know, dive into. Maybe this is something I want, you know. And um I said, well, that that could be exciting and I thought about I imagined all the possibilities that could be if I if I dove into this, what what could happen? What could I learn about myself, you know? And so Liam ran across this book Actually, even before we went to the polyamorous coach, <laughs> um, Liam ran across this book called, um, it, it was the, um, <laughs> oh God, my mind just went blank. Uh, Chris, Yes, thank you. <laughs> uh, Chris Ryan's book, uh, who was a friend of ours, his book, Sex at Dawn. And this is before we met Chris, but he, um, Liam read his book and then um, 
you know, it's like, look, hey, read this book. This is really interesting. This talks a lot about like kind of, you know, what we're going through in the situation and and why we would feel the way we do and those kinds of things. And so I read it and I was like, wow, that's amazing. And, you know, let's, uh, let's look, look at this a little more deeply. And, and so, of course, now we realize we're in Portland, which is like the polyamorous capital capital of the world. Of course, I was, I was going to say know if people you, 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 that or not. You moved, you moved to Portland. To, to I know get away from that. <laughs> we didn't really know I guess, until we moved here, and so that's God's um, sense of humor. I, it is right, uh, exactly. So um, apparently, it's a very normal thing here. If no one knows that, but. Uh, so we eventually became friends with Chris. He moved to Portland for a short time and we became friends with him. And just actually by meeting him and talking to him and meeting people, uh, friends of his and and talking to people who it was really kind of a normal occurrence and people were doing it. And I was like, huh, this is interesting. Just learning about it from other people's perspectives and knowing that it's actually not a it, it's a normal thing for a lot of people and a lot of people actually want to do it. You know what I mean? And I was oh, like, yeah. wow, that's really interesting. And so, but I never, the, the thing that I didn't really get was very successful relationships that were polyamorous and I, I wasn't seeing a lot of those. And so that was part of it was like, okay, well then how are we going to do this successfully? And I, I realized that um, it really, there's no, there's no rule book for it. There's no rules to, on how to go polyamorous. It's just, you kind of have to make your own rules up based on, you know, your communication between your partner. So being brutally honest, being really, really honest, which means you have to know yourself a lot, uh, to be honest with another person, whether they're, whether something's triggering you or if something really is, uh, not okay, you have to speak up, you know, you can't just say, Oh, well, I, it's, this is really good for my partner. So I should just let it go and, and let it slide. If, but if it bothers you, you, you shouldn't do that, you know? So I was seeing a lot of people that were in denial, um, in these relationships and, and just ca- kind of letting things slide. And I'm like, I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be that person that just, you know, is the person that's alone uh, at home alone that's <laughs> and their partner's off, you know, doing things or whatever. And, um, so it was, it was a lot, of, and we're still kind of not, you know, fully there. This has been many, many years and we're still playing around with it. It's not like we've jumped into the polyamorous pool or anything. We just, we're, we're really just still playing around with imagining and, and ideas around it. And, you know, Liam has, a uh, a girlfriend, a friend that's in Canada, and that's really great because she's in another country. So, um, and then I've played around with some some dating as well, and just simply because I'm curious about what I'd be like with another man. Because part of my journey is is that I've always wondered, um, you know, it, when you're with somebody for so long, you kind of know who you are with them. You know, you're a certain person with them in, in some respects and you, you know, there's some comfort within that too. But, um, I think you really learn about yourself. And even if it's not an intimate relationship, you still learn about yourself when you're, um, building new relationships with people, especially in the beginning, it's a lot of work and there's a lot of like getting to know each other. There's a lot of excitement within that. And I, t- I, I started discovering that I'm really I started acting differently, like I needed to perform or I needed to impress around guys that I wasn't, you know, besides my husband, 
Um, and I was like, what is that all about? Like, why do I feel like I just, I have to put on this like image and I can't just be myself in front of somebody, you know, that I'm getting to know for the first time. And so that was a really, so like things like that, little lessons like that are are things that I've learned, uh, that have really helped me learn more about myself and how I could, uh, grow as a person to expand uh, my capabilities. And that can actually spill out into so many more things. But um, our journey was to explore that somewhat. And I and, and it took us to where we are now, which it's, I mean, we, we wanted to get divorced a couple of times for sure. We were very much close to it. And, and but we, you know, we did, you know, we did a lot of emotional work together and we, we, we found that we really wanted to be together, which is really actually pretty special. I don't know that many people discover that about each other. Uh, I think it's, it's a huge deal to discover that you actually want to be together and you don't really need each other. Like you don't, I don't like need him. I could totally be okay on my own, but like, I want to be with him, you know? There, there's a difference. So, you know, he just, he makes me laugh. We have fun together. You know, he really, uh, he really brightens my life. And that's why I like being with my partner. But I, you know, we had, we have this uh, thing that we want to kind of explore too, which is to explore ourselves around other people. And I don't know yet where that's going to take us. And I, it, it, you know, from this point on, like, I, I'm going to, you know, I don't think, I don't think you're not going to get triggered. I don't think you're not going to get jealous. I don't think that necessarily goes away with time or experience. Uh, I think you have to use those triggers and that jealousy to, uh, to communicate with your partner, to learn and grow and, and discover what's within you that needs to be, that needs some attention and so I think those are, those are the types of growth opportunities. Also, you know, with that, you, you get to, you get to also exercise your boundaries. I mean, how many times are we really doing that in life? You know, like how many times is it crucial that we exercise our boundaries that way? Um, you know, so literally if you aren't liking something that your partner's doing, you have to, you have to be truthful and that's a great way to learn how to set those boundaries. So, yeah. yeah. So I, I don't, I, it's, it's still a work in progress. It's still something we're true. We're learning about, uh, but really being around Chris and, 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 and that during that time, that was pretty healing for me just because I wasn't, when, when we lived in Atlanta, I wasn't, there wasn't a bunch of people that were really, uh, were really do living that life. And, and, and I just kind of felt like I was some like alone in that whole journey and I couldn't tell anybody or talk to anybody about it. And it was really, really hard, but, um, and nobody knows really what to do in that situation, to be honest with you. So except for people who have been through it themselves. Yes. Well, you can rest assured in every city in the world, there's plenty of people that are going through that experience, but they're keeping it as secret as possible. And at that point it's called cheating on your spouse or your partner. Well, that's true. Yeah. And that's, that's really hurtful. And that's one thing we didn't want to do. And, and I think it's a total natural thing to be attracted to other people. That's the other thing we realize. It's not like you're, you're a bad person. 
if you're attracted to someone else. It's totally no, it's, normal. It's, it's totally normal. In fact, if you weren't, you'd probably have a deeper problem. Yeah, <laughs> right. I did a very comprehensive exploration of multiple partner relationships with Aubrey Marcus and Kyle Kingsbury. And uh, by the, I've, I've got so many podcasts on deck. I'm probably about uh, 12 or so podcasts ahead of schedule. But uh, that podcast will probably come out before this one uh, goes live. But for anyone listening that hasn't listened to my podcast on multiple partner relationships with Aubrey Marcus and Kyle Kingsbury, it's a very deep exploration. And I get deep into the depth psychology of it all. But there's a few things that I wrote notes on while you were talking because I didn't want to interrupt you. Uh, one is, are you familiar with what an anima or an animus projection is? No, actually. Well, in Jungian psychology, the anima is the feminine, uh, com- uh, the feminine element that is subjective that every male has. So mm-hmm. because, because God is whole or because nature is whole, if you want to use a different language, if a woman has a a feminine body, then her inner nature has to be masculine to counterbalance it. So a man's soul nature is that of a woman. In Jungian psychology, that's the animus. And a woman's soul nature is masculine. And it carries the counterbalancing qualities that are the classic qualities of woman, such as a nurturer, holding the family together, being receptive, etc. So her animus has the qualities that are masculine, kicking the kids out of the house, discernment, logic, rationality, getting to the bottom line. And so if a woman does not engage her animus, then she becomes a pushover. She becomes uh, somebody else's uh, doormat. Uh, she becomes controlled by men and loses her life and, and ends up like a lot of women with heart disease that die of loving everybody else at the expense of themselves because they don't listen to their inner voice that says, you need time for yourself. You need to take care of yourself. You need to learn to say no when it's time to say no instead of just giving in. You need to Tell your kids to clean their own bedroom instead of breaking your back because they're 13 years old and they're still not picking up after themselves. So that that inner voice that a woman inherently has that carries those male qualities is her animus. Mm, A man has the same qualities. So when a man's about to spank a kid for being mischievous, devious, or getting in trouble, the woman in him says, do you really want to do that? Maybe they need a hug, dot, dot, dot. And to the degree we don't listen to our soul nature, then we stay polarized in ways that actually lead to too much turmoil and problems within ourselves and in our relationships. And that often leads to health problems, diseases, and the need for doctors. But really, those doctors should be depth psychologists in this point. But why I'm bringing this up for you is because Jung showed very clearly, and I see it every day in therapy and have studied it myself extensively, that we project our soul nature out onto others. And in a man, his animus, the nature of his animus is basically most informed and influenced by his mother archetype. Because each man's first experience of a woman 
is his mother. So the qualities of his mother that he is most attracted to, for example, the first pair of boobs any man gets his hands on is his mother's boobs. So to the degree that he was nurtured by those boobs, he has an imprint in his mind of what those boobs look like, felt like, taste like, and how they nurtured him. And so, for example, if a man's mother had nice full boobs, he's likely to be attracted to women with nice full breasts without realizing that he's projecting his mother anima onto, or his mother archetype onto women. What you're describing in your husband, which is completely natural, is that whenever he comes in contact with a woman who has characteristics that remind the little boy in him of his mother, he will fall in love with her, just like the little boy is in love with his mother, but he will actually think he's in love with this adult woman and not realize he's got an anima projection, Mm -hmm. which is a projection of the mother. And the woman does exactly the same thing. Yeah, that's 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 funny that you mentioned that because that is what we... What I found out as well, yeah, through that process, that is what happened uh, and what continues to happen, I think. But, uh, yeah. Uh, it always happens. It's interesting, it's, right? Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's basically, it's got a very deep spiritual reason. You see, mm-hmm. remember Jung said the task of all children is the unfinished business of their parents. How can you work through the unfinished business of your parents unless you attract one of them into your life. Mm. So we attract, I'm sure if you, you and your husband were in therapy with me, I would very, very, very easily identify where he's living out the unfinished business of his parents and you yours and how you two carry exactly the seeds and the triggers that each of you needed to activate the unfinished business in each other to work through it and grow through it. And if we didn't have that built into us, evolution would cease. We'd all just be photocopies of our parents and nothing would change. Yeah, definitely. I agree with that. I think that that is a huge reason on why we stayed together. I felt this huge, I just felt, well, not huge, but strong pull to, to, to see where this takes us, you know? Um, initially, like I said, I wanted to run. And then I realized when I kind of settled down, I real and I realized, Hey, I, this is something I have to do. So uh, I think it was hard for me at first because I really, what was bugging me in the beginning was the judgment I would get from other people. So I kept it secretive and didn't really want to tell, of course, family and stuff like that. So it was, it was hard, uh, until I met the group in Portland and then it was, it was much easier to uh, to talk about, but uh, I think that that's a big deal too. That we don't think about. Um, there's a there's a judgment around that, you know. Like you don't want to be the woman who gets taken advantage of, or you don't want people to see you that way. Like, oh, she's getting taken taken advantage of. Her husband is doing what he wants to do, and she's just letting it happen. Well, you know, of course that's not the case. Um, and those are the things that I was worried about. And and finally, I was just like, well, let me just figure out what I want to do. <laughs> well, there and, you go. You know, and, and, yeah. And that's, that's right back to the shaman saying, you need to spend time with yourself to know who you are or your sense of self is only based on what other people say about you or what their judgments are. And this goes right back to Christian puritanical programming and fitting into the group and not upsetting God and making sure you look just right and 
you don't um, disgrace the family and anything that doesn't fit the values of the church has to be kept secret. And the list is very, very long. But there's something deeper rising up in here. You talked about, you know, your your uh, your reaction to him being with another woman, how you just you wanted it all or nothing or you're going to get out of Dodge. And that's a very, very common reaction uh, from both sides, male or female, depending on who's the one that's having the announcement. I'm, I think I might be in love with somebody else or I'm attracted to someone else. But one of the things that people still haven't figured out in, in general is that the reason there's such slow spiritual growth amongst human beings is that by definition, spirituality is connecting to a greater and greater whole. And the greater the whole you connect yourself to, the more you realize that you're not in control of most things in your life. But the ego's illusion is that it is in control. The woman's ego illusion is that she has some level of control over her husband and he won't have sex with anybody else or fall in love with anybody else. And a man often has the same control drama growing, going. But in reality, the ego is creating an illusion. All I, I'll just ask you a simple question. Of all the things that your ego thought it was in control of, now that you look back on your life, how often was it really in control? It was. I mean, I realized at that moment, that's that was a turning point for me, actually, when I realized that I wasn't going to be able to control him. And the more I tried to control the whole thing, the less control I had. Like, literally, like, I, it would go... Uh, it would not go how I wanted it to go at all, you know? It, it, so... Uh, I had to really, like I said, I had to surrender. I really had to surrender. And I think that's one of the first times I've had, I had to do that in my life and let go of that control. And that is part of uh, what I've learned about tapping into my feminine is being able to do that and not, not it being a weak thing, you know, so much as it's just, it's just a letting go, you know, and, and then let's see where that mystery takes us. Like, we don't know. It's pretty unknown right now, but let's see where this takes us. It could be fun. It could be exciting. It could actually end very badly. I don't know. You know, let's just take this ride. And, and you know, and it's not like we're being irresponsible about it. But uh, I just think that sometimes there's things in life. I mean, a lot of times, actually, there are more times than we want to realize there's things in life that are very unknown. And we can't control everything. Well, I'm going to share some things with you. One, you just used a very magical word that's inherently a pivotal word in spiritual development, and that is surrender. We are actually not practicing true religion or spirituality until we learned to surrender. And we also need to learn to sacrifice and sometimes it takes a much bigger heart and a much bigger soul and a much bigger capacity to love, to surrender to and to sacrifice to the needs of somebody that you love if they're genuine and they're not based in, in trickery or malice. He came forward to you and shared with you, which is a very, very rare thing for most people to do. So he already demonstrated a tremendous level of commitment to you to be vulnerable and to share that with you before his sex organs took over. <laughs> so, you know, the spirituality is by definition that which dissolves the ego. 
So people resist anything that threatens their sense of control or the ability to have what their ego thinks they want. But to the degree that the ego keeps getting what it thinks it wants, it doesn't get challenged to grow itself. So again, evolution ceases. So all religious systems at their core, all spiritual development systems of what religions really are intended to be before they became corporatized, are systems of learning how to let love be your anchor and trust God in the universe that things are unfolding the way they're intended to do due to the perfection behind that which creates the universe itself. So if, if our idea of God, of God is something that is um, inherently that which can be controlled, then we have no God whatsoever. We are in love with an idea, which is the practice of idolatry which is unfortunate because the Christian religion killed countless pagans and others for practicing idolatry. But if you study what idolatry idolatry is, uh, the Christian religion is smack dab caught right in it full force. And so we, we see this sort of worshiping an idea that gives us a false sense that God's giving us what we want so that we can have what we want when we want it. And if, if we don't get it, then we're pissed off at God, which is really to be to be stuck again in the child archetype. But surrender is is also truly feminine, and most men have a tremendous problem with surrender because we're trained right from the very beginning to be tough guys. Don't let anyone push you around. Always win. If someone punches you, punch them back. So you know. All you got to do is look at Donald Trump and you'll see he's as far from the concept of the feminine principle as a man can possibly get. And it's very damaging to our culture. It's it's dangerous to the entire planet. Um, you know, another thing that I meditate on and teach my patients and clients and students is that true love cannot be lost. It can only be transformed. So whenever you're feeling this sense of insecurity or fear, if you truly have love in a relationship, that love is unshakable. It, 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 may be, it may manifest itself in different ways, just like the earth manifest, manifests itself in different ways as an expression of its love in spring and summer and fall and winter. Nobody walks around in the middle of winter in a field of snow upset because there's no oranges on the trees because that manifestation of love has transformed itself into something that's essential for the earth's own capacity to nurture itself, which is winter. So part of us growing up and having deeper relationships than we begin with, with childlike expectations and projections upon each other of my rescuer who's going to make my life perfect and always going to be there for me and dot, 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 is this actual growth into the depth of our spiritual unfolding and into allowing love to transform from puppy love to romantic love to mature love. And you're smack dab in the middle of experiencing mature love, which comes with facing adult realities and facing the difference between false religion and false spirituality and that which challenges the ego to, to surrender to something greater, a greater, more all-encompassing love, which, as you said, requires a lot of honest communication or 
the ego starts projecting its own judgments, biases, and fears and believing them as though they're facts. And that leads to people killing their partners. Any detective will tell you one of the, the whenever a spouse dies, the first person they investigate is the other spouse. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. That, that does happen. Be, I watch forensic files sometimes and I see there that. You go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Be, make sure you, make sure you leave the scene clean. Yeah. <laughs> Which means you can't drop any DNA. So that's uh, tricky. Right. Most but, of the time, the husbands end up killing the wives, unfortunately, on that show. I, I stopped watching that because it's just so dark. But I liked watching yeah. it because of all the – it just was a fun, like, puzzle put together. But it's interesting. Yeah, the well, science you know, behind it. <laughs> we, we all love looking at ourselves. And that's what yeah. all these shows are. They're all just looking at the parts of ourselves that it's easier to watch on television than look inside of ourselves and see. And, and yes. that's part of the immaturity of our culture that's trapped in this childhood uh, dogmatic religious idea. This is exactly why Osho said Abrahamic religions are religions for children and Eastern religions are religions for adults because there's no daddy in the sky to rescue you or punish you or tell you what to do. You have to develop your own relationship with God and you have to take responsibility for your own choices. And there is no paying uh, for penance to get into heaven to compensate for your misgivings. You have to work through it and work out your own karma. And that is truly what a religion for adults is. That is Buddhism. That is Taoism. That is Hinduism. There's many, many uh, much more uh, adult religions than the ones we're caught in. That doesn't mean there's not adult components of or that uh, Christianity, Islam, or Judaism can't be very adult. But to find the adults in those religions, you have to study the mystics. You've got to study St. Hildegard, You've got to, uh, who, who was considered to be the first woman women's liber in the world. Uh, you've got to study uh, St. Bernard. You've got to study Meister Eckhart and, and people like that. And you find that these were not only very, very deep trailblazing people, but they often said the things they said at risk of having themselves killed by the church. And many of them did die for sharing the truth. In fact, if you study St. Hildegard, I think it would be great for any woman wanting to really see how powerful a woman can be all the way back in the 11th century, she was trailblazing and she was like the Joan of Arc of mysticism and an absolute unbelievable, powerful woman, amazing artist, music composer, uh, wrote scripture. She had one of the most evolved healing approaches to diet. I've got two of her books on diet that are mind blowing that she wrote in the 1100s. She even shows how to use meat for healing different approach. Wow. I mean, mind blowing. I mean, there's, if you used to go on Amazon and search St. Hildegard, you'll find at least two or three great documentaries on her life. And she is a great example of really an adult approach to Christianity. And then you've got Father Thomas Keating, who was amazing, who did a lot of work with Ken Wilber before he died. And you can find his stuff. So there is amazing teachers in, in, in Islam. You've got Rumi, who was just way out there. It's amazing they didn't torture him to death. And I mean, Rumi's teachings are so absolutely mature and, and it's the, the connection to and the, and the depth of and the understanding of God. Just They just blow the typical Western religions so far out of the water. It's like, what happened over here? Well, it's called corporate religion. It's called using religion to brainwash people to make money off them. And it's not a surprise that the Vatican is considered to be the richest corporation in the world. And it doesn't take but about 
uh, a few hours of study to figure out exactly how that has been done. And this goes right back to these issues of multiple partner relationships and, and many, many other things, because we are not given the tools to really explore what unconditional love really is. We don't realize that unconditional love is absolutely volatile. It's explosive. It makes universes. It Mm -hmm. makes stars. It does not have fear of doing anything. It is doing everything you see for better or worse because God has no fear of knowing what God really is and God cannot know until God explores the light and the dark with equal intensity, equal honesty, and that is as deep as love gets. So one of the things that you triggered me to share is that, you know, I've noticed that women often seem to be a little bit kind of uneducated as to the nature of how a mind's mind, a man's mind works. And men are wired by nature to spread their seed. The concept of monogamy does not live in the second chakra of a man. And evolution wouldn't happen if men didn't have the urge to spread their seed. And, and, and sex at dawn gives a very good expose of the uh, tribal ex, uh, tribal approach to sexuality. And you can study Voices of the First Day by Robert, Law- Robert Lawler. He gives a mind-blowing expose of how the aboriginals teach sex to their children, how they practice it, how the aboriginal, most aboriginal women, they... Young men are not allowed to get married in an Aboriginal tribe until usually about 37 to 40 years of age. And from the time they reach puberty, they're encouraged to have sex with all the married women. And each of the married women's job is to teach that man how to pleasure a woman. And only when the women of a tribe deem him an effective man to be married to, do they give him approval to get married. Hmm. Wow. They yes, our cultural approach to sex is as childish as our approach to religion, politics, money, nature, science, dot dot dot. And I'm not trying to be mean, I'm just being honest. I've spent my life researching this and as you know very well, Allison, I've spent 35 years working with very messed up people trying to get to the core of what's really driving it. And these are the very issues at the core of tremendous amounts of problems. And a lot of it boils down to this concept of the ego trying to control the outcome. But if you try to control the outcome with the ego, you're trying to use yesterday's ideas to control what's happening in the present. And yesterday is gone. And today is a new opportunity to learn, to live, to love and grow And I had to work through these things in my first marriage. And I talk about that in my podcast with Aubrey Marcus and Kyle Kingsbury. And we get very, very deep into it, much deeper than I have time to get in with you. But my point is women don't realize that oftentimes they get married to a man and they think I got him now. So within a year, they stop being the pretty girl that they used to be. They gain a lot of weight quite often. And they don't have that excitement about him anymore, that mystique. But a man is wired for change. He's wired for novelty. He's wired for different color eyes, different color hair, different different you know, body attraction. 
And one of the things that I've shared with many women that have come to me with relationship problems behind their irritable bowel syndromes or their digestive syndromes or their menstrual cycle problems or their back pain or their neck pain or their uh, breast cancer, as I ask them, when's the last time you actually went out, got your hair cut, changed your hair color, got your nails done, changed your makeup style? And most of them say, oh, I haven't done that in years. I don't even remember when. That just means your husband is flat out bored to death and the spirit of him can't help but look for somewhere to metaphorically plant his seed. And many women have told me how amazing it has been for them when they go out and I tell women, most of you girls love to buy some clothes. Anyhow, go out and buy <laughs> some new, some new nightwear, some, you know, negligee, some sexy nighties. Change the color of your hair. Change change enough that when he comes home, he goes, wow, honey, what happened? And his sexual juices begin to flow and it can just reignite a relationship. And it's up to the women to decide what they need to see in the men. The most common thing I hear from women is that their husbands are boring in bed. Well, then teach them what turns you on. And if we just connected with each other, understood each other better and gave each other the gift of loving each other enough to give that, there would be far less cheating in marriages and there would be far less need for anima and animus projections to try to give ourselves this momentary experience of being alive. Because when we have an anima or animus projection and we have this sort of kind of teenage puppy love experience like you've just described with your husband, it lets us feel alive again. But we go home and it's like Groundhog Day, same smells, same macaroni and cheese, same TV show, same sound of the vacuum, same dot, dot, dot. Well, we all get bored and, and the soul of us says, this isn't what you came to this planet to do. You came here to enjoy stories. You came here to sing. You came here to dance. You came here to spend time with yourself, to learn who you, who you really are and get a relationship with your soul so you can be guided, not from your ego, which is made of everybody else's ideas, not your own. If we don't spend time with ourselves, then we are trapped in our ego, which is a, an illusory construct of other people's ideas. And I'll ask you a question. I ask people to prove this. Allison, if I could plug your head into a quantum supercomputer and download every idea that you have in your head that you think is your own, how many of those ideas, if I track them, would actually be of your own novel making versus ideas you'd picked up from reading books, talking to people, hanging out with teachers, watching television, listening to podcasts, dot, dot, dot? That's a great question. I I would say not many, uh, probably. Right. <laughs> For most, yeah. people, most people with honest analysis say it probably wouldn't be more than one or two percent. Yeah, and I say you're yeah. right. And, and that's what your ego is. Your ego is about 98% mom's ideas, dad's ideas, school teacher's ideas, church's ideas, government's ideas, society's ideas, coach's ideas, team's ideas, television ideas. But almost none of it is who we really are. And we find ourselves in a marriage crisis and we actually think that what we want is what we want without realizing all we do is acting out artificial intelligence that's been planted into our head 
and we still don't even know who we are or what we want, what we want, and we're damn afraid to go out there and figure it out. When the knock on the door of a husband or a wife having a desire to have an affair is usually great spirit tickling you in just the right spot to get you to wake up and say, get to know yourself on your own time by your own values, but be honest about it, or you're just playing a very dangerous game of bullshitting yourself and this relationship will fall apart and your next relationship will fall apart and you will go through this until you're dead. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's, uh, you, if you think about it like this too, you know, it, it doesn't have to be another human being. It can be interest in something else too that takes the interest away from the partner in the relationship. You know, it could be a hobby. It could be a job. <laughs> you Absolutely. Know? So I, I think that we have to remember, we have to, and like w- the, you mentioning people keeping up with themselves and letting themselves go when they're in a comfortable relationship. I think there's some beauty to comfort and security for sure. But at the same time, you need to be a little uncomfortable sometimes and realize that nothing is set in stone, that nothing's forever. You know, it's not your promise to no one, as John McMullen says. Uh, you know, so I, I would say that uh, with that, you got to fall in love with yourself. You have to bring the interest back to you. And I think what makes actually Liam and I would, I would guess, I I would guess uh, I would, it would be the same for him. Us more attracted to each other is when we are able to creatively express and be ourselves. And that is so, that's so hot. That's so beautiful to see in someone else, you know? I mean, of course, when you're doing that, then you're excited about living. You're excited about your life. You want to you want to look good for your partner. Uh, naturally, you want to look good for yourself. You know, uh, so that all should come pretty naturally when you when you're being yourself. Yes, and you know, when you look at how many people in in marriages have gotten to the point where they can't even see their own genitals anymore, I'd say it's safe to th- say they've let themselves go. Yeah, and that guys do that too. Plenty, <laughs> oh, you know. <laughs> I, I'm by no means polarized in my observations. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think I think you got to do it for you, though. You know, and then uh, I mean, if you can find, I guess, if you get motivation from doing it for other people, but uh, I think you, it's got to be at this point in my life, anyway. It's. I just want to feel good in my body. I want to feel good. I want to feel light. I want to feel sexy. I want to feel healthy. I want to feel like I have energy. Like that's what gets me up in the morning. You know, that's what keeps me moving every day. That's what, that's why I eat really healthy food. You know, I, that's why I get to bed before 10. Those are, that's why, you know. When, when you open the door to loving yourself and caring for yourself as loving for yourself, it's the same door that love from someone else walks through, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> and until that door is open, then no matter how hard tries, someone tries to please you as a lover, as a partner, as a spouse, all they can do is give you boxes of chocolates or a new mm. pair of shoes. And it's just an empty form of love. It's really just, a, it's just, a, it's, it's really an expression of, consumerism. Yeah. It, it's just, when you say something like that person isn't doing it right, or they're 
you know, they're doing it wrong or whatever. Um, they're not meeting my needs. Well, that's because you're not meeting your needs. <laughs> exactly. You know, <laughs> so yeah. that's something to pay attention to. One of the things I wanted to ask you just from my own experience, it seems to me from, from my experience having two wives that most women actually need um, another wife more than they need another man. Uh, you know, the, the work of raising a child and running a family and, you know, the cost of living a decent lifestyle and being able to afford organic food and a vacation and having enough money to, you know, have decent insurance for whatever you need to protect your home, your car, your health, whatever. I mean, it's expensive to live a life that allows you some comfort and some freedom. And it seems to me that most women would have far uh, better uh, likelihood of really feeling alive and supported if they had another woman in the house, whether there was sex involved or not. I mean, I know when I, when I, when Penny and I first got together, Penny and I have just had our 22nd um, anniversary, March the 29th. So we've been together pretty much the same time you guys have been together. But prior to that, I had a 17-year re relationship with my first wife, uh, who was the mother of my first son, Paul Jr. And when I said to Penny, I said, honey, I can't be in a monogamous relationship, and I don't ever want to have to lie to you, and I don't ever want to have to cheat. I just don't want that kind of relationship with the person who is my partner in life and who I'm going, my intention is to spend the rest of my life with. And she said to me, you can have as many wives as you want, as long as they cook, clean, <laughs> contribute to the bottom line, and don't talk too much. So she said, the more of those you can find, then go for it. <laughs> and so yeah. having lived on that agreement and, and had my chance to really express my love and, and <laughs> project my anima, uh, and and deal with it, you know, when you find out that you're making love to your mother, it only takes about a year and a half and you figure out what's going on if you're paying attention. Right. <laughs> um, you're like, oh God, here she is again. Yep. Same same nagging shit again, same complaining. And, <laughs> and you realize, oh my God, I'm doing it again. I got to <laughs> shut that projector off. But my point is, you know, uh, I see how Penny and Angie support each other and how they nurture Mana. And Mana loves both of his mommies. You know, Angie, of course, is his real mother, but Penny has such a deep, loving relationship with him, and he's so happy to go places with her. And, you know, she can take care of him, and he hooks on to her just like more kind of like Sex at Dawn talks about tribal uh, mm -hmm. relationships, you know, and there's an old saying, it takes a tribe to raise a child. And it's very true. And there's so much, so much Christian suppression of women and so much patriarchal control of women. And I hear so many complaints from women about how shitty their sex lives and how boring their husbands are and how it's wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. And they really just want some intimate nurture and they want someone who has more capacity to listen to them and not try to fix them all the time. If you could have a wife that you may or may not have sex with, how might that be more supportive of you than having another husband if you could have two of them? <laughs> 
Well, I mean, I just want to start by saying I think that we did used to, I mean, obviously we did used to have women that would work together. That's how we're naturally supposed to be. We're, it's a, we're supposed to be a community who we're supposed to help each other. It's a sisterhood. And that feels to me way more natural. I don't have young kids anymore, so I don't really feel like at this point in my life I would need something like that. Although I did have a woman who is really wonderful who helped us out when the kids were younger, and that was amazing. I think a lot a lot of women are very depressed because they are doing it all themselves, and we're really not meant to do it all ourselves. This is Amen. something that's very unnatural. And so, um, you know, I truly, I, I'm truly nourished by my sisterhood. So I get, I have groups, different groups of women that I get together with. And, uh, we just be, we're just women, you know, we're just women together and we do women things like talk a lot, you know, and, and stuff like that. And, and so I, because I'm in a house full of men, I pretty much, you know, I need that. I need that for nourishment. It's fun for me. It's joyful. Um, I also have a group that, um, is, we do a sisterhood uh, group every every couple weeks online, and it's just really great to have a, a group of women that you can gather with and and talk about talk about things with and and uh, relate to and connect with, uh, with on things that you know they can connect with too, and they can feel like um, you know they could listen and and hold space for you there because that's that's something that I think we're missing in our society is the women have kind of been separated, you know, and our true power is when we get together, we have to, you know, I think traditionally women would be, would get together on their own and men would get together on their own. And, you know, uh, that was pretty powerful because we need that time where we're, we're just together and we're learning from each other, you know, or we're holding space for each other. Uh, we, it helps us as men and women to get to know ourselves better that way. Like I never really knew how to be a woman, you know, when I was younger, I think that was the whole point of like what we talked about, you know, I, I never really learned how to be a woman. So now in my midlife, I'm learning how to be a woman and it's so much fun, you know? And I think that's another part of why women, uh, have health issues is because we've never really taught how to be women. You know, and yeah. and so it's liberating. It's it's very freeing when you can be yourself. So you mean watching the mob wives or the baseball wives on television is just not doing it for you? No. <laughs> I mean, th the fact that those shows even run makes me want to yeah. vomit. I mean, that's I can't where watch that our, stuff. how 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 many indicators do we need that our cultural programming, our religious ideology? And all the ways we have to suppress ourselves is turning us into a culture that is trying to fill the emptiness in its heart and its sex organs with shoes and toys and gadgets and cars and fake status symbols. And I mean, I look at this and I go, my God, no wonder we have such a need for psychotherapy today. And uh, no wonder there's so much medical drug and, and recreational drug abuse. And no wonder people are running off to the jungles and droves to use ayahuasca and take mushrooms to try to figure out who they really are. You know, it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, uh, you know, 
I guess what I'm saying is I'm really glad you're doing the work you're doing because the fact that those kind of television shows that obviously cost multiple millions of dollars to create and market are staying on the air means that we are in actually quite deep trouble psychologically. Yeah, I mean, and we're and it's perpetuating this competition between women, which is a very small part of being a woman. I mean, <laughs> you know, me- women are meant to connect with each other. We're we're meant to support each other and Absolutely. be there for each other. We're not meant to compete against each other. That's not, you know, what we're supposed to be doing. Um, but that yet that is portrayed in media and. So then it, it creates this narrative and, and that's where kids are learning now too. They're learning from media, you know, it's, it's what they're learning. They're learning how to be adults from media. So that's why I think, uh, you know, we have to get back to some of the old ways. Well, the truth is they're not learning how to be adults from media. They're learning how to be spoiled, rotten kids in adult bodies. Yeah. Unless they have parents that can really intervene. But well, uh, that's, yeah. that's why Steiner schools make it clear right up front. Yeah. We don't want your kids watching televisions or using tablets because it messes them up. Yeah. And if you do that, they almost always become uncontrollable in class and we can't work with them. So, uh, you know, when we look at, and there's, uh, there's a book I've got right now, I'm studying it called Hooked. Um, I can't remember the author's name. It's a strange name. I'll near or something like I near or something, but boy, it shows you exactly how all the corporations and the app makers and phone makers have invested huge amounts of money into the science of exactly how to brainwash people and keep them hooked on all these gadgets. And it's quite a powerful, powerful read. They've, you know, my research into brainwashing showed that the Catholic church had brainwashing mastered by the eighth century and they've been perfecting it ever since. And the corporations have certainly torn a page out of their playbook and they're taking it even further. And it's really damaging to our children. It's, it's, uh, you know, we're losing ourselves in, uh, in destroying nature by building endless shopping malls, fast food joints, and living in an illusory life of reality television that doesn't prepare us or educate us for real life. Absolutely. And that's why it's more important right now, more than ever, to become your own authority and to learn how to listen to yourself, like listen to your own voice. Don't be so easily influenced. And sometimes you have to, like as an adult, I've got to get off social media. You know, I've got to get yeah. off all those devices to to get clear on some things. I got to go out in nature, spend some time yeah. in nature, you know, so Wherever you're thinking in nature, I think it's going to be pretty, pretty close to what your true self is. I kind of is the conclusion I've come to. (laughs) I think it it keeps me pretty clear, you know? Yes. And, and we need to protect it before it's gone. Yes, absolutely. Well, I'm going to skip forward one because we've been going for a while. Um, I just want to, there's just a couple of quick questions to close out. Allison, I'm curious, what is your belief in God? And how do you, how does that belief help or hinder your ability to see and understand what is transpiring amongst women and human beings in, in the world today? Uh, well, I, I think that uh, nowadays, I don't, I don't think of God as like this guy in the sky with a beard, a white beard. You know, I think, I think of it now. If I were to 
have an image of God. I now I practice that more as looking at the 13 moon goddess archetypes because they truly will teach you about your shadow and light sides. And each one is very unique and kind of shows a certain side of, um, of being a woman really. Cause that's really where I'm at right now. I'm, I, I feel like I need to learn more about myself, like these kinds of things that I didn't really get to learn when I was younger. So, um, so for example, like I'm, I'm in this group and we focus on a different archetype each month and one of them is the Lady of Communion, which is one that I really resonated uh, a lot with. And um, because I just felt like I have embodied her all my life, like that she has been, I've been her. And so, um, you know, looking at some of the shadow signs of her, like powerlessness, overzealousness, blame, unclear motivation and intent overachieving, righteous indignation, you know, um, or some shadow sides that I've had to work on, right? And then looking at the light side of her would be um, intention, spiritual warriorship, impeccability, um, authentic presence, um, integrity, you know, self-empowerment, those kind of things, abundance, independence, resourcefulness. Um, so, that's kind of a way to play around with it. And there's also symbols that you can, and colors and stuff that you can embody to bring that energy more into, uh, into your reality. But, um, I think those kinds of things for me right now. And I think, uh, also I see, uh, that I'm the creator of my reality at this point. So maybe that makes me God or goddess. I don't know, but, uh, that's, that's kind of the perspective I'm coming at uh, right now and, and seeing uh, it that way. That's quite healthy. How does that help you deal with what you see transpiring amongst women and human beings in the world today? Uh, I think that it could, you're saying, how does it help them or how can it help them? You're saying, how does it, how does it help Allison deal with what she sees happening oh. among women and in human beings in the world today? How does that oh. way of relating to yourself, how does that spiritual relationship with God as you, the creator, and God as the 13 archetypes of the moon goddess, give you the strength or the vision to help understand the challenges of women and human beings in the world? Well, I think it gives me a, a more of a sense of calm and confidence and trust, really, in myself. And That's only, excellent. Yeah. And only then Where, can I do anything for anybody else unless I have that. Amen. Where where could you what references could you give for others that want to learn about the 13 moon goddess archetypes? Um well, that's a good question. Uh I would say uh there there's a great book that my coach recommended to me called The Mists of Avalon. It's a really big book, but it it talks about the priestess and and um and uh, kind of the, the particular priestess in, in Avalon, it's a, it's about that story and, and, and about, I haven't read the whole thing. It's very big. It's a very big book, but um, I, it's very interesting because I think that um, if we could learn more about some of the priestess archetypes and, uh, and kind of uh, some of the things that were practiced before the mainstream religion came into play and think yes. about kind of where we came from, you know, that would be, I think, really healing for a lot of people and it's been healing for me. But, um, I would also say, uh, like 
astrology is really great too. I come, I'm a little bit of an astrology buff, but, um, but I think that, uh, you could check out, you know, hannahbeer.com is my coach and she could definitely steer you in, in the right direction for that. That's where I, she leads a group that, um, does the 13 moon goddess archetypes. And right now I'm just kind of in the beginning stages of learning about all this, but, but, um, you could certainly contact her to find out also more information about that. But, um, how do you spell her last name? Um, it's B I E R it's hannahbeer.com. Is it H A N A or N N A? Um, H A N N A. I can send you the link as well. Yeah, do that. Yeah. And we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. Uh, you know, the other thing that that's very helpful for this, although plenty of Christians have a knee jerk reaction due to their false information and misprogramming, is tarot. This is tarot is linked directly into astrology and many other native traditions and numerology and it's a phenomenal way to look at the archetypes you've got many of them are very helpful tarot number two is the high priestess which is the inner life the feminine inner life of ourselves which is being alone with yourself archetype three is the empress which is the loving mother you've got uh tarot 14 which is temperance you've got tarot 17 which is the star I mean, the the there's a lot of great feminine archetypes in tarot, oh, yeah. Yeah. you know, and and you know Christians think that's the work of the devil, but the work of the devil is is uh, what's happening on television <laughs> and, and to it's, nature and in corporate uh, enslaving and and fascism. Yeah, it's because it's feminine. That's why they think it's the work of the devil. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. That's, it's, that's my theory. But um, I also have another book I can recommend to your audience, um, the Gaia Codex. And I've, I think it's kind of wonderful. Uh, it's it really talks about um, a lot of the things that um, it's kind of hard to explain, but uh, it, it talks a lot about a lot of the things we're talking about here with the high, the priestess and, and archetypes and, and uh, this thing called the Gaia Codex, which is basically, you know, kind of a, uh, rule book for life or something like that. I guess it's just kind of like rules for life. I, you know, like, um, what Jordan Peters- Peterson wrote, but from a long, long time ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. actually, uh, I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to my interview with James Wanless. Uh, no. I think that, Oh, it's a mind blowing interview. He's the creator of Voyager tarot and it's Voyager tarot is stunningly beautiful. And he studied, cultures all around the world and each card gives you descriptions from many different cultures so you can look at it from geomancy you can look at it from alchemy you can look at it through shamanism you can look at it through uh man a a whole bunch of things numerology there's like 12 different ways to look at each of the cards in his deck and he got rid of all the medieval christian uh bad bad news and converted it stuck with the archetypal numbers so the arc the major arcana are the same but he brought it he brought the mythology of it up to date for the modern era and it is absolutely a phenomenal piece of work oh, wow. and, the, yeah. and 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 you don't take but five minutes listening to this guy you know he's a, the epitome of the wise old man archetype oh i'll definitely listen to that one that sounds great and he is very funny <laughs> <laughs> i bet <laughs> <laughs> Well, what a great interview. Um, Before we go, what is the focus of your clinical work at this time? 
Well, the focus of my clinical work is I, I see a lot of people physic, uh, one-on-one physically in the gym, and then I work with them uh, online on, in the nutrition component. So I, I focus a lot on training people in just moving better, but specifically running, hiking, climbing mountains, having better core stability. I do, I've been doing some handstand workshops as well. So really like the intricacies of, of, uh, more integrated movement is what I help a lot of people with. Some people come to me with back injuries and, and I help kind of take them, uh, after they do physical therapy and, and help them integrate into getting stronger and, 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 you know, more uh, functional and stuff like that, which is, I love doing that stuff. It's so much fun for me. Um, and then also the other part of my program is what I provide for my clients, either either online or in person, is uh, building your food and fitness foundation e-course. And that's included in my coaching and they can have access to that. And it's a self-study course that they go through. And we have a monthly online uh, nutrition and lifestyle coaching session that goes with that so that I can help them implement the changes um, that they're they're making with um, really learning about their body, learning how to uh, nourish themselves with the right foods. And it's just basically, there's no, there's no specific diet. It's just a, an education on how to eat really, you know, and then uh, as well as uh, a foundation of fitness that you can start with for better mobility, um, healthier spine, uh, stronger core and, and a breathing module as well. Sounds good. Uh, where can people find you uh, and access your services or uh, whatever else you'd like to give uh, access to sharing for the podcast listeners today? Well, mainly uh, pureenergypdx.com is my website and you can find everything there. They can they can book a free coaching call with me. That's 30 minutes and we can talk about their struggles and, and their wants and, and how I can help them moving forward. As well as um, they can always listen to my podcast, which is called Integrate Yourself. And I, I interview a lot of people, including you, Paul, that yeah. <laughs> are in the industry and that are alternative people to health. And give. I just like to give people and share with people a lot of options on how they could keep themselves healthy. There's not really any right or wrong. It's just there's so many things that they can do. And so I just like to share with people like different ways that you can do that and you can make it your own that way. Perfect. Any closing comments before I give you a metaphorical hug and a kiss goodbye? <laughs> Oh, I just want to say I'm I'm so grateful for you, Paul, and I'm so honored that um that you that you let me come on your show. Thank you so much. I really appreciate well, it. Yeah, I just wanted to share you. You know, you spent a lot of time studying with me, and uh, you know, one of the questions I was going to ask is how you're applying the Czech Institute teachings. But just from hearing what you're offering, it seems like. They've served you. Yeah, I, I think that is the foundation for everything I do. It's just that the Czech principles are like, you know, it's the ground floor. You know, it's the floor work that everything is built upon, you know. So if you don't have that, I mean, there and, and there's so much there's so much nuance in the simplicity of it all, you know, and yeah. so much we can learn from that. So it's it's fa- it's just fantastic. And I'm glad that that I uh you know, met you years ago and, and took the class, all your classes. And I think actually I ended up taking every class besides the first one. I think every class you taught actually when I was taking Oh, that's it. rare. Yeah. So you, you got to hang around with the 
sometimes <laughs> sometimes stern teacher and the guy that wanders off the beaten path, but trust that you'll get the points you came to get. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I learned from the best. Right on. Well, hey, thanks for sharing all your love. It was a great exploration today. I really hope that all of you listeners got some medicine and found some joy and some harmony with what we're sharing and realized that we're both really just genuinely interested in sharing our life experience and our wisdom with you and inspiring you to grow. And if something either of us said triggered you, then that was a gift because if you've actually healed, you don't get triggered. So wherever you got triggered, if you're still here, then your soul's saying, hang in there. The medicine is here and it's a gift to all of you. I always tell my students, don't believe a word I say, go out and try it for yourself. And I think you would agree with that too, wouldn't you, Allison? Absolutely. Lots of love. Thanks for everything today, Allison. And blessings to you and your husband on your honest journey of love. Thank you, Paul. And blessings to you too. And lots of love, sending love your way. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Alison Pillow. You can follow Alison on Instagram at Pure Energy PDX, on Facebook at Pure Energy Wellness, or on her YouTube channel, Pure Energy Wellness. Subscribe to her podcast, Integrate Yourself, through Apple Podcasts and Blueberry. Follow Paul on Instagram and Twitter at Living 4D Podcast or on his YouTube podcast channel, Living 4D with Paul Check. You can watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com and the Czech Institute's blog at checkinstitute.com forward slash blog.